How about that cigar? How about that cigar? Guys, it's Tuesday. You know it. You love it. It's our favorite night of the week. Welcome to episode number 66 of How About That Cigar Live. As always, brought to you here from the Drew Estate Cigar Studios. We want to tell you about the new launch of the latest addition to the Deadwood lineup, Leather Rose. To all retailers nationwide, uniting with her sisters, Sweet Jane, Fat Bottom Betty, and Crazy Alice, the spicy Leather Rose is the boldest lady of the bunch. Mm. This 5x54 torpedo features a rich Maduro wrapper and proves to be the spiciest of the Deadwood family. Lighting up the Leather Rose will fill the room with her exotic aroma, plus the effortless draw will leave you longing for more. The Deadwood Leather Rose is a 5x54 torpedo packaged in 24-count bucket. Mm boxes and will be shipping in july for more info please visit drewestate.com so So, thank you guys all so much if you're watching on facebook live right now if you're watching on youtube live right now take just a minute share us out to your favorite facebook cigar groups share us out to your page give us a like give us a subscribe all that good stuff Mm -hmm. garrett i'm excited because baseball is coming back little by little Got to see some scrimmage. Got to see some, you know, some some teams getting out there, stretching out, moving around a little bit. We I'm did excited have an to injury. see it. Yeah, we already have an injury. <laughs> so Byron Buxton, who's a he's a great fielder. He's got a great glove. Uh, yeah, he he might be he might be done. He might be. He might. So and we'll uh, another piece of news that I I just wanted to bring up. I don't know if anybody saw this. If you were ever a fan of the show MythBusters. Uh, Grant Imahara uh, actually had a brain aneurysm and died today. Yeah, I heard. I never watched MythBusters actually, which is weird because I'm a nerd, but I never watched that show. Oh, it was a great show, and I loved Grant. He was the nerd behind it all, and um, brilliant guy. Super sad. So tonight, uh, this wonderlust. R.I.P. Grant. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, guys, there's as we've been talking about for the last couple months during quarantine during coronavirus and all that we want you guys to continue as you're able to support your local shops you know and we've talked about recently shops are starting to open up again but there's different states with different regulations so Mm -hmm. we just want to encourage everybody to call ahead to your favorite local shops and find out what their policies are today. They might be different than they were yesterday or than they're going to be next week. But call ahead, find out what they have available. If there's new releases, because this this tis the season right now for a lot of new releases coming to market. So if there's new releases that you want to find out about, call your local shops, keep in, in touch with them on Facebook, and get out there, as always, continue to support the local brick-and-mortar cigar shops. Yeah, and we want to encourage uh, and thank you for being a part of the conversation on both Facebook and YouTube. We see all those comments here. Um, a lot, a lot of people are more active on Facebook, but please, uh, you know, we appreciate the love on YouTube as well. And, uh, thanks for tuning in and all the places that you watch the show. Yeah, definitely. And it's tonight is a, a show that's different than anything we've really done before here. Um, you know, and I jokingly called it the cigar hive mind, you know, just because we do have, we do have a lot of people on the show tonight. And the reason that I invited tonight's guests on is because I really wanted to get perspectives from different areas of the industry. We have retail, we have brand ownership and we have media. And I wanted to get different perspectives from different people who work you know, and, and, and have different relationships and, 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 uh, have different responsibilities, I guess, in the, in the industry. Uh, so, uh, let's bring in our special guests. And as always, our special guests are brought to you by 
Corona Cigar Company and CoronaCigar.com. They are the Internet's largest and easiest to use virtual cigar store. Corona Cigar Company offers you the finest handmade cigars, humidors, and cigar accessories at the absolute lowest possible price. You'll also find unique and limited cigars containing Florida sun-grown tobacco. As a proud American, president and founder of Corona Cigar Company, Mr. Jeff Borshowitz believed it was possible to bring cigar tobacco farming back to Florida. At Corona Cigar Company and CoronaCigar.com, you'll find the best selection anywhere in the world of cigars containing this special Florida sun-grown tobacco. If you live in Florida or are just visiting be sure to visit any of the great Corona Cigar locations in downtown Orlando, Sand Lake, Lake Mary, and also the Davidoff of Geneva Lounge in Tampa. For more info on all of that, please visit coronacigar.com and floridasungrown.com. So, guys, let's start off with our first special guest of the evening. He is a retailer, one of the biggest retailers in the country, and he's a great personality. We're so excited to have him on the show from Smoke In. Abe DeBabna. Abe, welcome to the show. Oh, we got you muted. Let's get your uh, let's get your microphone. There we go. Abe, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, next up, we have from Developing Palettes, Mr. Cigar Surgeon himself, John McTavish. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, my first time on the show, but uh, I'll make sure it's my, I mean, not my last. <laughs> and I, I, I have to say before we go to the next person, I, I really dig the Bob Ross background. Thank you, yeah. brother. I appreciate that. Yeah. Happy trees. <laughs> two, uh, two quat loose to whoever can figure out uh, from the audience in comments uh, what this background is a shot of. Oh, all right. All right. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Uh, and did he, did he say, did he say two quaaludes? To- <laughs> quat loose. It's for the nerds out there. It's like quaaludes, quant. but more nerdy. And next, uh, next up, we have from Roma Craft to back, Mr. Skip Martin. Skip, welcome back to the show. Literally, just as I said that, he froze up. Yep. Why? I mean, that is the worst timing in the is. history of planet Earth. We'll come back well, to Skip. I don't know yep. what just happened. <laughs> that was the, <laughs> That's that okay. was the weird. We'll okay. roll with it. So, All right. So we'll come back to Skip, and now we're going to go to our our next guest, Charlie Minato from Half Wheel. Charlie, welcome to the show. Am I muted or Mm-mm. you're good to nope. go? Look at that. Awesome. I don't know what happened to Skip, but we'll uh yeah, we'll come back we'll to let it. Word limit. Word yeah. Yeah, already <laughs> before the show started. Even in even in the virtual green room before everything got going. Um uh, let me see if I can get all of us on screen. There we are, we're all on screen together there. Um, they used so, up the full data plan. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, he dropped out of the. He'll he'll come back in. So uh, I want. I actually wanted to start with Abe uh, with this first question. So, you know, what we really were planning on doing, you know, early in the year was, you know, this is July fourteenth. We were going to be just now getting back from and resting up from a very busy PCA trade show. Well, that obviously didn't happen, so we don't have to rest up from that. But you know, since we're not recapping a trade show, um, one of the things I wanted to do was, you know, sort of talk about, you know, there there are different things that happen in the cigar industry, and, and there's going to be impacts regardless. Uh, and so first from Abe, I want to find out from you, you know, since the, the trade show is really supposed to be for retailers, and, you know, you being one of the biggest retailers in the country – 
It, what direct effect do you think the lack of a trade show will have on you and your business, if at all? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, a direct real effect, not having a trade show for my particular company, probably not much. Um, I'm fortunate enough to me personally, right? I'm fortunate enough to be in South Florida. The majority of my the industry is literally in my backyard. Um, and, um, I, you know, I personally kind of haven't gone to the trade show for a number of years now. Oddly enough, this was going to be the year I really was making a concerted effort to go just out of solidarity, really, more than anything. Um, but I don't think I don't think it has an overall major impact. Um to our day-to-day business or even our, you know, just how we go through the motions annually. Um, it probably should, you know, in all theory, it, it probably should have a, a bigger impact, but it hasn't been designed that way and it kind of hasn't been operating that way now for a long time. So um, I think the trade show benefits maybe a, a lot of the smaller companies. I mean, if you're talking about a non, you know, fraternal level of going there and socializing and having a presence there, you know, just in pure functionality, it's not much. And, and maybe in a lot of the mid-level or smaller level guys, or depending on where you are in the country, it's it's a, it's a key opportunity to meet manufacturers and maybe get some table time with people that you otherwise normally wouldn't be able to. But literally being here in South Florida, we, we kind of don't really have that problem. Like I said, the majority of the industry is still here. Not having a trade show this year will be interesting to see um, – how it's going to play out. I mean, we kind of talked about this on, on our radio show uh, this past week with Terrence Riley and Coop. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of mid-level companies and, and maybe, you know, maybe above mid-level companies who are going to see that maybe not having a show didn't really impact them that bad. And between the money they saved and, you know, the deals they still did, I mean, we've, we've been getting deals now for the last month in the majority of the industry. Um, it's going to be even harder, I believe, now to overcome. You know, sometimes you don't realize, a lot of people don't realize the unnecessity of something until it's no longer there. Then you kind of realize, whoa. So um, I don't think that's something I want to to see happen, really. I mean, I'm personally rooting for the trade show. I, I think the industry could benefit from a proper trade organization. Yeah. Um, I just don't know if they'll have what it takes. I mean, it's just going to be interesting to see what happens going into 2021. Yeah, that's definitely true. And um, uh, real quick, uh, Abe, are you uh, smoking and drinking something tonight? Yeah, I am smoking. I am smoking a Pope of Greenwich Village, which I uh, is one of mm-hmm. our micro blends. We were down to like the last 20 or some cigars from our original run, so I I nabbed them. And I, I, I had one a couple weeks ago because we had uh, Pedro Gomez from Tua State on one of our whereby chats. So I it was I pulled one and then I realized we only had like twenty some sticks left. So I ended up nabbing them all. <laughs> nice. The nice. last batch of them are, are with me and I'm I've been working very hard trying to talk to fine folks over at Drew Estate to do a second run. Yeah. There you go. Well uh Skip, we lost you just at the split second we were introducing you. So uh from Romancraft to back, Skip Martin, welcome to the show. Hey how are you doing? The deep states monitoring my transmissions. <laughs> 
check for uh, check for Chinese IP addresses. Right. <laughs> Risty, Risty. Anytime I'm about to say anything, Risty comes comes in and cuts off our Wi-Fi. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, Skip, we were just talking about Abe about you know impact on retailers, and for you as as the um, as the manufacturer uh, and brand owner, you know part of this discussion. Uh, as far as lack of a 2020 trade show, uh, you know, we, we were talking about the fact that this was going to be the recap show for, for PCA, but since there was no show, we still want to talk about the current state of things. And, you know, do you, do you see a real, a, a real effect, um, you know, from the lack of a trade show, uh, short term and long term? Uh, do you think it's going to affect your business at all? Well, I mean, I think there's two different parts. I think there's the organization of the PCA, and then there is the trade show, right? So from a, from a trade show perspective, um, you know, we've always said that the, the primary – we don't really go to the trade show to sell. We go to the trade show because it's easier than taking, you know, 400 different trips across, across the country to visit our customers. Uh, we don't have outside salespeople, so we may only see some of our customers – you know, once once or twice a year in their store, once a year in their store, and then once at the trade show. So um, for us, the trade show is really about sitting down, going over, you know, how the last six months looked, uh, the last year looked, um, you know, where they are, what, you know, what products, uh, you know, they're carrying, what they're not carrying. Physically, they can see the products. Um, but mainly we talk about the relationship. And then we use the fact that a lot of people are together at the trade show to have this kind of, um, you know, fellowship with them like you know our our after party or you know those things um so from that perspective you know from a revenue perspective uh as of today i looked it up we're we're five percent over where we were last year in terms of revenue we're about 98 percent we were where we were last year in terms of cigars imported um and we're uh something like 25 percent up year over year in terms of profit. And primarily that's because we haven't had the travel expenses, um, the event expenses and the, the show, the, you know, trade show expenses. So, you know, all those things saved us something like 250, $300,000 in costs so far this year. Um, so, you know, the second half of the year is going to look a little bit different because, uh, the second half of the year, generally, we're coasting on back orders from the trade show. So this year, we'll actually have to, you know, sell things as they come in throughout the rest of the year, um, where we normally don't have to do that because everything that comes in is already pretty much sold. So um, the other way it's going to change is, uh, you know, we missed about four weeks of production at the end of March and the beginning of April, uh, the first three weeks of April and last week of March. So... That's about 100,000 cigars or about 8 to 10% of our annual production that we don't have um, that will hit us in August, September. So um, we'll have to figure out some way to kind of make up for that. Yeah. Um, and uh, what JSK are you smoking tonight? <laughs> <laughs> I'm smoking a, a Baca um, Grand Perfecto, and I'm drinking Rum and Havana Coke. Club. Havana Club, yeah, and Coke. <laughs> awesome. Um the second part of that is the organization of PCA, right? So um, we can t- – I don't know if you're, you're kind of referring to that, but the mm-hmm. fact that there well, is no yeah, staff yeah. doing – Yeah, we'll get into that. Okay, yeah. 
Yeah. So that's a, um, that's a separate discussion. Yeah. Um, and also from, you know, from a media coverage perspective, that's one of the reasons I want to have John and Charlie on is, you know, because cigar media, you know, covers a lot of, uh, a lot of material at the, you know, at the, at the trade show. And, um, you know, there are companies that are doing things to, um, you know, continue giving information to cigar media and companies that aren't, um, and, and, you know, some companies that I've seen do, you know, kind of go outside of the box of what their, their, uh, their norm has been. And so Charlie, starting with you, because for half wheel, you guys cover just about everything on the trade show. And I mean, literally everything. And, you know, from a, from a coverage perspective, you know, not having that trade show, um, does it, does it impact half wheel at all from a business perspective? And, um, what do you see that companies are doing to, you know, try to make up the grounds uh, from a relations perspective that they would normally get at the trade show? From a business perspective, it's sort of the similar situation that where Skip is, is at. So we make a little bit of money in terms of profit at the trade show, but we also spend a, a lot of money and we sell ads to offset those expenses. So not having the trade show is a minor financial hit, but it's not um, not really a, not really changing how we're planning for the rest of 2020. From a traffic standpoint, June was the first month probably in two years where we didn't have year-over-year growth. We got very close to it, but last year the trade show was taking place in the latter stages of June, and then obviously our trade show coverage, we I want to say that we published something like over two and a half, like 2.7 times the amount of articles in uh, June of 2019 compared to June of 2020. And we had 99.8% of the traffic or something. So certainly on a, a views per post metric, we were way up and we've been going up consistently for many years now. July is going to be, I imagine, another similar scenario where we, we don't capture the same amount of traffic, but we're also publishing a quarter of the posts that we published last year, given that the bulk of our trade show coverage spilled into July from the, the other side. And, and that's not great. Like I, I agree with what Abe said about the, the sort of immediate impact of the trade show and, and the business end and, and what's the incentive to go to the trade show and, and the issues in terms of what needs to be addressed. And I'm sure we're going to get to that going forward. Um, and so, you know, media is a bit different, but they're, they're, you know, as long as I've been doing this, it's been quite obvious that the trade show was going to have issues. I certainly didn't think that it was going to be caused by some dude eating some bat in Wuhan. But um, <laughs> as far as the relationship end goes, I don't know if I necessarily think that many of the media people have tried or many of the companies have tried different ways of media. I, I don't to me, it's kind of the same struggle that exists pre show with us where we send people emails about products that we know that they're releasing. And then sometimes they have it and sometimes they say it's going to be two weeks and we're still sending those emails out now. Um, you know, I think the other part of, about all this is that it would be one thing if the trade show had just gotten canceled because the sands flooded or something the week of the show, but yeah. that's not what took place. E everyone since sometime in March has been operating in a very different capacity. Um, and certainly when it comes to, to sort of planning for 2020, like, you know, there's the one I skip sort of mentioned this, like you're going to have to make up that money 
that on his end in the latter half of 2020 that you normally wouldn't have to hustle as much for. But mm-hmm. the other part of this is who knows what the world looks like next week, mm-hmm. let alone right, yeah. the start of Q4. So uh, I think it'd be a lot easier if we were just talking about they canceled the trade show for a very specific reason that wasn't, you know, the world's on fire. Um, but that's obviously not what happened. And so who knows? Yeah. And uh, Charlie, what are you uh, smoking? I'm smoking a Craft 2020, so the new Romacrafts limited edition, because I have not smoked one yet. Um, and I am drinking a gin and tonic, specifically Kenobi and tonic. Nice. Very nice. Love my gin and tonics. Um, so, John, um, you know, also from a media perspective, um, but you know, you coming from uh, developing pallets, which has a which has a large team of a lot of people with varied experience levels in the, you know, in cigar media. You know, kind of an amalgam of people from previous media companies, kind of building something new. And you guys already had a lot of great established relationships with a lot of people in the business. But um, you know, there's there's definitely a loss from you know for any cigar media outlet as far as you know, wanting to get information out there to viewers and help cigar companies tell their stories and things like that. Um, so what do you see as the, as the, as the big impact to, you know, developing palettes specifically, but also, you know, just cigar media as a whole from, from this lack of a trade show that we're, you know, missing. Yeah. I think, I mean, for me personally, there's quite a number of impacts. I mean, like Charlie kind of alluded to, I think for most cigar media companies, the trade show represents a pretty significant amount of traffic articles to say nothing of the relationships and education that is a big part of that trade show. Obviously like Charlie, we don't, we don't have the same level of cost, but we do have sunk costs. And I think sometimes those costs are misunderstood because as Charlie mentioned, some of those costs can be offset by advertisement, but in a lot of cases, a lot of those costs are out of pocket or, or come from the site. So for this year, we actually are out because the media house that we had is a sunk cost that we're not going to get back. So hopefully we'll get that back in 2021, but it's, it's basically a complete loss for us for the year because we can't get a refund. Uh, fortunately, most of us were able to get our flights returned, which is good, but you know, there is a, a, a significant amount of relationship building that takes place at the show and, you know, we'll get into it later. But I, for me being in media for a while now, since 2012, I think that, you know, it's transitioned to the show is really 70% about that relationship management building, you know, Skip kind of alluded to it. It, There is a little bit of a party aspect to it, but there is a lot of legitimate, you know, business discussion and and relationship building. Um, For me, in a unique position being the dummy that decided to do Cigar Media from Canada, which is, you know, (laughs) one of the worst environments and getting to be one of the worst environments in the world to do it from. Um, this represents a pretty significant blow to me because I depend on going down to the show or at least being in the United States personally in order to bring cigars back for review. Now I, you know, typically this time of the year, I'd be down in Vegas bringing back basically all the cigars that I intend to review from July all the way to the new year. And I can't do that. So I'm essentially scrambling and I'm in a position where I need to figure out how to get cigars from two borders that are shut down and a product that the Canadian government doesn't want shipped into Canada. So yeah. uh, that, that represents an that's interesting a, challenge a, that I've been dreading since 2012. That's a weasel code red. 
right? <laughs> well, and I'm that, setting up the flag. That actually brings up a question that I was curious about for you specifically, John, and that is I, I know that um, for like Dave Burke is in Australia who does, you know, cigar jukebox with Coop mm-hmm. and people in the past have sent him cigars and it ends up costing Dave a shit ton of money just to get those cigars you know, released to him from customs. Is it the same with you? So if somebody were to ship you cigars, like if I were to ship you a box of cigars, would it cost you a shit ton of money just to get them released? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like Fight Club. You don't talk about shipping cigars because you never know who's listening. But yeah, if if I get dinged, I mean, Dave's in a unique position because Australia truly hates him and all cigar smokers. But in Canada, it's, you know, they hate you, but they still want to get a little piece of the pie. So they're willing to let the cigars through and they want to take a little pound of flesh with it. So yeah, if you were to send a box of cigars and I were to declare it, uh, I'd have to I'd have to get out the black card because you know it's going to be a significant nut that uh, California is getting a little taste of. But you know we have unique a unique taste up here. It's you take a basically U.S. MSRP and multiply it by three and a half, and that's essentially what I'd have to pay in taxes, depending on what kind of mood the uh, border services agent is in that day. Wow. Yes, someone then, in customs in Canada is wondering what John does with all his wooden boxes. He gets uh-huh. to customs. <laughs> art, art supplies and uh, right, right. man Monks. grooming. <laughs> I'm glad I have the beard because now I can just say it's beard beard uh, beard maintenance products and there you go. hopefully get a pass. But no, it's um, it's tough. And, you know, fortunately, because the, the border usually is quite an easy border for me to cross and I'm down in the U.S. quite often – uh, I can bring back cigars with me. Dave's in a b- bit of a unique position where he has to fly 17 hours or whatever it is. Yeah. So easier for me, tougher for Dave. But like I said, with the border being closed and seemingly no chance in the near future for me to be down in the States, uh, I'm in panic mode. And as Skip said, I'm, I'm, it's a definitely a weasel code red situation where, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out alternative situations. Yeah. John, what do you? Uh, you got to come to. You got to come to Weasel Fest, right? Right. Except, they, except they won't let the dirty Canadians in unless you want me in Austin at your place for fourteen days. I would. That would be okay with me. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, I'm starting with the uh, El Triumphador, um, which is just about gone because I started smoking in the green room, and then on deck I have a Aquitaine because uh, you know skips on, so why not? Yep. And then after that, coincidentally and not at all planned, I do have a Jassum crawl sitting on the uh, <laughs> sitting on the desk. So uh, that'll 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 make the Macedonian hackers pretty happy. Yeah. Uh, for beverages, I decided to go with an Ardbeg uh, Corey of Reckon, which is uh, kind of one of my go-to's. So nice. check check that uh, check that JSK for antenna. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the uh, glass you're drinking out of is that, is that the. Is that the Norlin? No, no, that's yeah. just no, yeah. it's just a straight up boring old Glencairn. Yeah, so one of our vendors at Whistlefest uh donated a bunch of those glasses for the people that are coming, so that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. The Nor- I mean they're not inexpensive glasses. So um the next question up is uh and I'm gonna start with Charlie on this one is is will there ever again be a cigar trade show that resembles the PCA trade show that we all have come to know? Hopefully not. 
Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I think in some aspects there will be. There'll be trade shows that people spend the entire time there complaining about, and then I'll write about it a week later and complain about it. So I think that'll be normal. But um, I, I don't know. I, I think that Abe sort of alluded to it, but, you know, I remember writing at some point before they canceled it that, like, you know, I, I don't think that if you were at the PCA that you wanted to cancel it for a number of reasons. But one of the ones that stood out to me immediately was you don't want to give people uh, like all of us on this chat, yeah, but particularly the retailers and the manufacturers, the world to live in where they they get to see a trade show not happen and they get to find out what it does to their business or what it doesn't do. And as I mentioned earlier, obviously 2020 is a, a very, very weird year, but we're learning that what takes place at the trade show as Abe and many others found out many years ago, isn't necessary because you can sit at home and save a bunch of money and save a bunch of time and uh, not have to deal with it. And so until the, the PCA or whoever, you know, whatever is in charge of the biggest trade show comes to the understanding that whatever they are going to have us do in person. And this is, this is something that, that at least I've been on the kick of for longer than coronavirus whatever we do in Vegas needs to be something we can't do over zoom or in your shop. It needs to be something that requires us to be in person and requires a certain mass of the cigar industry to be in one place at one time. And unfortunately the way the PCA trade show and the IPCPR trade show, and I suspect the RTDA trade show before it has operated has been entirely the opposite. It's all been about this concept of discounting and giving retailers uh, discounts and the manufacturers getting the volume to justify giving the discounts and spending money on booths and parties and dinners and travel. And and that's just not a sustainable method. And that has nothing to do with the cigar industry. Uh, shows like Basel World and auto shows and you run down the list of trade shows and a- anyone that's relying on more than 50% of the incentive to come here being about buying has just, it's been annihilated by the internet. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think I answered your question. I, I suspect that they will try the PCA trade show without any major adjustments in 2021. Okay. I don't think that's going to work. And I, I have a feeling that a whole mess of people are going to sit out for a, a number of reasons. And unfortunately, as we learned a couple weeks ago, the PCA's financial sis, uh, situation would suggest that they probably don't have the ability to get uh you know, the 2021 trade show wrong. It needs to be something that that's a, a wild success. And I don't think this models it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would, I would answer your question by saying, Hey, there already, there is going to be an alternative trade show. They didn't call on you. They're going to call on John. There is, there is going to be an alternative trade show, which is TPE. Um, right. so, so if, if you're the kind of company that needs a trade show, I think more, retailers who who are interested in going to trade shows will start more and more going to TPE and cigar companies more and more will, will participate in TPE. Um, but that's not going to be the same trade show. TPE is, no, no, is handicapped it's, it's, by the space and is unwilling to change that. So it's not going to be the right. trade show that like, I think inner tobacco will keep going for a while. Right. You don't see, well, I don't know. Like uh, the Schusters, our distribution partner in, in um, Germany the Schuster family has had a booth at the Inner Tobacco for as long as the Inner Tobacco has, has existed. And this year, for the first time, even before coronavirus, they had decided that they're no longer going to do the trade show. Well, so, I mean, Arnold Andre wasn't there last year, but right. were you there last year? I forget. I, I, I wasn't personally there, uh, but we, our products were there with the Schusters. 
Yeah, but I mean, Orlando Andre, another large German distributor, wasn't there last year, and you couldn't tell that inner tobacco has changed other than Orlando Andre wasn't yeah. where it normally is. Right. Beyond that, whether there's a, a PCA, you know, the question is, does the PCA – the PCA has a critical mission. Just like Abe said, um, we depend on the PCA as manufacturers and, and even as retailers. But, but more, if the state associations are important – for the anti-smoking laws and the tax laws and those things, but but at a at a at a national level, it's the federal laws and particularly whether it's FDA. You know, FDA is not going away. Even if the substantial equivalent stuff happens, there's going to be the next thing is going to be a, a call for expanding the FTC labeling. Then you know another master settlement agreement type of agreement among all cigar makers. And then there's going to be um, you know the question of whether uh, we have to go through testing and then whether they start looking at our manufacturing facilities and all kinds of other things that are coming. But um, the question is, does the PCA, can the PCA conduct their mission if they depend on the trade show for the majority of their income? And I, I don't think that they can. I think they're going to have to, if I was the president, of, if I was Scott Pierce, the very first thing that I would do is I would change the, the organization so that um, – so that you had representation from all the stakeholders on the board, number one, manufacturers as well as retailers as well as media. I would I would uh, make sure that um, the manufacturers who used to contribute to the PCA secondarily through this very expensive, you know, it's like running a credit card charges you three percent, but collecting income from the trade show costs you forty five percent. Right? It makes no sense. Like instead of me spending one hundred fifty thousand dollars or two hundred thousand dollars at the trade show to get seven hundred thousand dollars worth of income that I would have gotten otherwise, let me do the six hundred seven hundred thousand dollars worth of income and give you fifty thousand dollars. If the PCA came to me and said we have a mission, we're going to do our mission. This is what we do, and we're going to charge you, you know, X percentage of your of your annual revenue to do that. You know, we're going to charge you one percent of your annual revenue or whatever the number is. I would absolutely participate and contribute to that, right? As long as manufacturers as a group had a voice and it wasn't just the 10 people who seemed to dominate, whether it's CRA or PCA or whatever, behind the scenes, right? Um, you know, because I'm a stakeholder of the work that they do and I'm a beneficiary of the work that they do. Um, so, you know, is there a room for the PCA to have some kind of place um, I would suggest probably South Florida or Tampa where they have a building. They throw down some carpet like many people have said. We have small trunk, you know, kind of smaller booths, uh, uh, kind of meeting rooms that we can book with, with certain people to have the kind of sit-down meetings we need to have, um, a place where we can display our, you know, our, you know, our products in a general way, either electronically or physically. Um, we can talk about new things. We can meet with the media. You know, we can meet with everybody all in one place. Have some after hours entertainment like like um, Abe has suggested with roasts or whatever else to make it worthwhile. Millie I Vanilli. think there's I, I think there's definitely a place there's definitely a place for that. But you know, like for us, um, if the PCA is not going to be there for us to be able to meet with our with our core kind of key business partners, then we're going to bring our key business partners to Austin and meet with them here. Um, and that's kind of what Weasel Fest is about. Um, but, there, you know, PCA is, an, is a necessary thing. Um, they have to figure out a way to fund themselves outside of a trade show. They need to figure out how to do a trade show that benefits the stakeholders 
as opposed to being a revenue generation source just for them. And, and, the, and in the meantime, the TPE is running trade show like a business and they're going to continue to grow and to, to fill that void. Um, the question that was kind of opened up, which was, are well, we as manufacturers, are we as manufacturers realizing that the trade show is not a necessary thing? Absolutely. People kind of have wanted an excuse to, you know, in the past, if you didn't show up to the trade show, it means your business was on the outs. You were net, you you're on your way of, of going direct, and then you were going to go out of business. That was just kind of the message you sent the industry when you didn't show up, with a few exceptions like Robert Holt, who skipped it to to do substantial equivalents and other things. But um, you know, when Gene Arganese didn't show up at the trade show, you knew he was done. When Avalon didn't show up at the trade show, you knew he was done. And I could go on and list fifty more, right? Um, when Villager showed up, you knew that they were no longer committed to premium cigars and brick-and-mortar retailers. Um, when the big four stepped out, um, they basically have been giving the middle finger to us anyway. So, you know, they all sell direct. They all um, are competing with retailers. So I don't know why retailers put up with them anyway, except for the fact that their products sell and they generate revenue. Um, but, you know, as, as forever, all the rest of us, We've now have been given the, the kind of, you know, white flag to say, um, you know, you don't have to come. And, yeah. you know, I don't foresee us going next year unless there's some we, – we may go get a small booth with a couch and a chair so Mike can meet with a few people who stop by. But we're certainly – our booth is going into mothballs, and, and we don't foresee it coming out. So, Abe, do you see um, – do you see a future – for the trade show that looks like what the past of the trade show was, or do you think that's done? I mean, you know, to what Charlie said, if that's the case, that'll be the end of the trade show. Right. I mean, this, where we were pre COVID was the lead up of years of trade show, not evolving. And, you know, the trade show serves different purposes for different people. I think the trade show is more important to companies at skips level than some of the bigger companies. I think that's why they kind of pulled out amongst other reasons, right? And, and, and where their alignments are. But the problem is, is a catch 22, right? You know, Skip want, Skip's talking about how it's like a 45% swipe, but it's also an offset because he just said it's nice because they get to see, they don't have a force that goes out and sees all these retailers. So it's the one time a year they don't have to worry about flying and spending out and you know, if you want to meet new customers or get new customers, that's where it's going to happen for a company like Skip. Otherwise, you got to send guys out in the street, right? So it serves different purposes. But the problem is, no matter how they align themselves for the manufacturers, if they don't figure out how to get the buyers there and make the buyers want to go there, then the manufacturers won't want to be there. So it's a symbiotic problem for them. They have to figure out how to do so, I mean, Charlie is spot on. If, 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 if when the big four pulled out, I, I think I had said that the trade show really needs to figure out how to reinvent itself. If it doesn't, it's in big trouble. And now with this year not happening, because this could have been a transition year, people may not have judged them too hard. You know, the big four pulled out, they were going to have to do it anyway. And we'll see how they bounce back 2021. But now they even have a secondary hurdle now. Kind of everybody, like you know, Charlie said, there's a universe now where the trade show didn't happen. And how do you bounce from that? So 
they have an extra hard job. And, and the problem is at the end of the day, you know, like Skip said, it, it's being run by people who aren't really vested personally or financially into it. You know, and, 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 and you know, how much effort or innovation comes out of that, I, I don't know. It's, 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 it's going to be hard. I mean, I was honestly, 80, yeah. it's, it's over an 85-year-old organization. I'd like to see it stick around, if just not out of, you know, just heritage or just, you know, some romantic reason why I'd like to see it stick around, right? But, you know, it won't unless it finds a way to be really functional. Yeah, so John, what do you think as far as uh, you know the the way the trade show looked and sounded in the past versus what it's going to look and sound like in the future, if at all? Well, it's hard to build on a lot of the things that have already been said, but uh, I mean, first of all, I agree with everyone. I think everyone here is a pretty well understanding of the flaws and what's been going wrong for years with the PCA. We we certainly saw it last year with the attendance levels. That level, you know, we've never seen the the some of the booths as empty as they are. I mean, I think if I were on the PCA membership on the board, you'd be looking at this as a, as an opportunity. You've got eight or 10 months where you can take this time to reinvent the, what the PCA does and the relationships and the people that are on the board, or you can continue to do things the way they are. And as Charlie said, and everyone else has said that model is failing and it has been failing for many years it, it kind of in a lot of ways mirrors how some manufacturers and retailers are failing to evolve with the changing times and the changing market. I think that the big four are not going to be impacted by this at all. Um, as Skip mentioned, I mean, they do plenty of business outside of the show. In fact, I assume they do 99% of the business outside of the show. So this probably doesn't even register as a, as a rounding error for them. But when you look at the mid-sized companies, and the smaller companies especially, I think this is going to be extremely impactful because for those who don't necessarily have a dedicated trade, uh, dedicated sales force, Skip's kind of in a unique position where, you know, they have very good relationships with their with their customers, with their stores. And I think that's not the typical situation for most s- small and mid-sized boutique cigar manufacturers. And I think they're going to feel real pinch where, all of a sudden, you know, you've got retailers who have been closed or in reduced capacity for quite some time now, and they're going to be cash strapped. And if you're a retailer, and I'm sure Abe knows this better than anybody, when you have to choose where that money's going to go, they're probably not going to be investing that money in the risky, smaller, medium-sized boutique companies. They're going to be putting that in the products that they know that sell with the relationships that they've got firmly established for years and years. And in some cases, that means the small and mid-sized companies are going to get shut out for some period of time. And I think that's that's going to have a pretty negative impact to the overall industry. I think the variety of products in a shop is healthy and good. Choice is good. Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, this might show unintentionally whether the PCA, you know, Charlie's mentioned this on many occasions, can the can the trade show just go away and it doesn't have any impact whatsoever? That is, you know, the trade show exists to just do business. That business can be done in other ways. So maybe the show goes away and, and it do, doesn't really have an impact. And I think this is going to really be quite telling in five or six months when some companies are doing no business whatsoever and they're wondering what happened. Well, what happened was 
there was no trade show. There was no expansion of the amount of accounts that you had. And some of the accounts that you had previously that you thought were secure have all of a sudden decided to drop your product because quite frankly, they just don't, they can't spend that kind of money on it. Um, we're going into some, some very unusual dark times. I mean, this truly is 2020 truly is the darkest timeline. Um, I don't know whether the trade show is going to happen at all next year in terms of things that are outside of the control of the board and outside of the control of manufacturers, which is in this current COVID environment, I don't even know in February where the TPE can, can even happen. Like, you know, I, I, if you asked me two months ago, I'd say, yeah, sure. That's probably going to happen. It's far enough in, in the future. But now I'm looking at it going, I'm not even sure that a trade show is a reality, even on the small scale of the TPE, let alone the bigger scale of something like Dortmund or the PCA. I, I honestly don't know whether that can even happen at this point. Well, and that's a good point. And it's interesting because that's something that last month I brought up. Um, I was on Bear Show with, with Ben Lee and, uh, and Aaron, and we were talking a little bit about this. And I was thinking about the whole health and safety thing uh because in like you said john in the in the covid environment in the post covid environment i think it's going to be tougher and tougher to find a venue that's going to because health and safety and liability are going to be such big factors i think in the future for any kind of trade show any kind of large gathering of people where people buy tickets to come to an event health safety and liability are going to be so important to these to these venues the companies that that have these large buildings and i think it's going to be tougher and tougher year after year to find a venue that's going to be willing to even if we pay this exorbitant cleaning fee after the fact i think it's going to be tougher and tougher to have a venue that's going to say, sure, you can smoke cigars in here for four straight days with 10,000 people. No problem. What do you guys think about that? Well, I think well, in a lot I mean, of, go ahead, Dave. Uh, I mean, look, I mean, even just for our event, we're only 3000 people. We're in next February. We've already started planning contingency plan for not having a physical event. I mean, we, we have ideas and are start doing models of, doing a different style event that we also feel there could be an upside because we might, we feel we can reach a lot more people since people don't have to fly and come down and get a hotel, but it won't be anything like the same kind of experience of what you people have come uh, become accustomed to in 15 years. And ours is in next February. Um, the fairgrounds who we had negotiated a contract with and date with has, has still gotten us the paperwork. And last time we talked to them, it's because they were implementing new COVID verbiage in all their, you know, legal documents or pandemic verbiage, you know, whatever you want to call it. And um, so, yeah, there's a there's a good chance, even in, for us, middle of February, end of February, we're pretty much we're at 50-50 of whether that will be a physical event. And we have to make a hard decision before November, which is not that really far away, before we start selling tickets. So, um, yeah, it, it's going to be interesting. I don't know how they're going to handle it. And, and like you said, there could be a possibility that whether they want to have a show or not next year, um, it, it may not be up to them. Because, look, we had, we had trips planned personally uh, from May to December um, uh, all over. And 
uh, just as of yesterday, I canceled my December trip. I, I, I don't plan on getting on a plane anytime in 2020. You know, so who knows? Yeah. Uh, Skip, you were going to jump in with something. Yeah, what, what I was going to say was um, two things. One, um, one of the things that this whole pandemic or whatever you want to call it has done is I think it's accelerated some inevitable structural changes in the economy. Um, if you look at just brick and mortar retail in general, in terms of a, a place that has inventory that people come into, grab something, bring it to the register, pay and leave, that model in general, unless the, the United States bans the, the, the mailing of, of, of tobacco products across state lines, um, that model in general is going away. Um, Amazon, those kinds of, you know, direct selling models through social media and through, through, you know, um, those, those things are taken over. And I think COVID has accelerated that. Um, people are, you know, getting accustomed to the fact that if I want something, I click it on my phone or whatever, and it comes to me. Um, on, on the other side of it is, and, and so I think that that's accelerated the decline of trade shows. I think that's accelerated the decline of of retail, I think it's accelerated the decline of face-to-face everything, maybe even education, right? Education, every student in America may be homeschooled in the next five years, right? Just through uh, technology, who knows, right? Um, but I think on the flip side, if you look at our industry, there is a huge portion of our industry, 60, 70% that is, that is already in that model. Um, I know anecdotally, I don't know the actual numbers. I know the numbers for Romacraft, but I know anecdotally people are smoking more cigars. They have more time at home. They have more time um, where they're not going out and doing things. And people are buying and smoking more cigars. And all you have to do is look at CI's numbers, Famous's numbers. I guarantee if you could look at their P&Ls, they are having record sales uh, numbers. Um, uh, I imagine uh, Corona and, and, and Abe are having great online sales numbers um, since since April, May, June, right? Um, on, the, on the other side of it, though, you have what is it that makes our community, you know, the other 30%, the people who buy 60% of the cigars, right? Whether they buy it online or in retail, they buy it because of this community we have. And that's all face-to-face human interactions with people who smoke cigars with us. It's a communal activity or relationships that we have with our retailers like Abe. You just have a a human need to walk into a place and have a guy like Abe or Abe's people recognize you as a regular, help you, and just make you feel like a part of the world, right? And for for a lot of people, they look at cigars and they say, I spent a lot of my – our customers at least, I spend a lot of my discretionary income on this thing that I basically just burn. Nobody gives a shit about it. They actually may dislike it. My wife's probably not a big fan of me spending so much money on this. Um, my family, my whatever. And, you know, there's a lot of people, I, I can't imagine me ever doing this, but there's a lot of people who just go, you know what? Today I'm going to start stop smoking. Today I'm going to stop smoking cigars. So, so where they used to go from one and people like Abe and me and other people have, have taken them from one to one a day or one a month to one a week to one a day. 
those people, because it's not an addictive product, they can just one day decide they're going to stop smoking cigars. It's not like quitting cigarettes, right? Right. So, so if you don't have, you know, the the communal relationships of the trade show, you don't have your relationship with your with your local retailer, you don't have relationships with other people in the cigar smoking community, then a lot of that demand just starts to fade away. And yeah. so we have we have to simultaneously figure out how to adapt to this new economy in a way yeah. that we haven't. I mean, I, I know stores that say I'll never do an online store. Well, you know, you're just dumb because you can buy <laughs> literally buy anything online. Why wouldn't yeah. you? Even if a guy lives in your town, if a guy can go on his phone and say, I want a box of Davidoff, I want to pick up at the curb or I want you to mail it to my house, you should be able to do that um, for that guy. And, you know, it, but if, if you lose, if you, how can you simultaneously adapt to that new kind of reality of the way the economy, the retail economy works in the United States without losing the communal social aspect that makes our community stronger, right? The, the ties that bind us stronger. And, yeah. you know, Abe talks about his great smoke. Look, you know, I'm sure it's a great thing um, to, to get cigars that aren't available other places or at a discount. But the reason why people really go to that is to see people they only see once a year or twice a year. To spend time, it's a, it's a, it's a pastime for them to go and spend time with Abe. And if that goes away, you know, whether it's Zoom or online or whatever, it's never going to substitute for the social, the ties of the social fabric that that event creates. I, I think Skip's exactly right. Right. So what? COVID, somebody write, mark that down. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, COVID accelerated whatever that was going to happen that was going to happen. So, like in our, in our situation, my estimate was we were probably about we could have gotten away with running our e-commerce out of our retail store for about another couple of years and we absolutely can't do it now we're actually looking for our first warehouse as far as the retail stores our retail stores without the bars are pretty okay i mean we're not down we're we might be down at a level where like oh okay it was a slow month not like a catastrophic pandemic is going on now on the bar side we're getting crushed the, the bar businesses right before COVID, we were looking at a 5,000 square foot building that we were going to move our first location into. And literally, like, we were waiting on the final paperwork to sign it. And thank God we didn't because there's no way I'm dumping three quarters of a million dollars into a new 5,000 square foot bar and lounge. Then we don't even know what the future of the bar business is. In fact, they just passed a mandate in Palm Beach County today where now. You can't serve liquor after 11 p.m. because COVID is way more dangerous after 11 p.m. than before 11 p.m. So <laughs> that's but, science. But it's, it, yeah, but it's one of those things that I've always said, even in my interviews, if you heard me talk, because look, you have to know what you're selling, right? And 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 the retailers who kind of understood this aren't going to get that hurt because look, Kodak went out of business because they didn't know what they were selling. Kodak went out of business because they thought they were selling film. Right. They weren't selling film. I mean, they refused to change because film was their business. But it wasn't. Making memories was their business, and they didn't see that. And when everything went digital, they got smacked. So I always say in my interviews when I'm hiring somebody, I say, what is it you think we sell here? What is it you think we sell for a living? And And that's what it is. Right. It's not the product. No one walks out of my shop and saying, oh, that was the best whatever brand I ever smoked. It's the same one you smoked and you bought it from the guy down the block. 
So you have to understand that what a good retailer, especially in our business, cigar lounges, we're selling something outside of the, the, the final product. That's just an ancillary benefit of being there. Like, look, I've always said, you know, cigars are like sex. You could do it alone, but it's so much better with company. Right? <laughs> so you got to create, you got to create that environment, that environment for them to want to congregate and be gregarious and socialize. If you don't do that, then you're just selling a stick. And, and like Skip said, man, you can do that anywhere. So I think the savvy retailers understand that concept. Guys like Jeff, who travels the country and builds his own liquor and buys his own stuff. I mean, he, he gets it. And, and those kind of guys will survive and f- probably flourish. And the ones that, you know, and look, we've all been in there. I, I stop at a cigar shop every time I travel. I walk in and it takes me five minutes to figure out who's working there. Yeah. Right? Nobody wants and, to and then and when you and then when you identify it's the it's the old guy in the chair over there he like yeah. breathes heavy when he gets up to the chair because you've annoyed him by fucking buying something. Right. Right? So, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean those guys are going to get hurt and, and and that's just Darwinism. That's evolution. I mean, well, that's shops not... like that though, guy, you have to agree. Shops like that were on their way out if COVID never would have happened. It would have taken yeah. longer, but they were on right. their way out. It just pushed it. Right. It just pushed yeah. it. It just pushed yeah. it. Well, and our, world is, so- our world is completely changing. Um, I think it's going to be a while before the dust really settles and we get into a new normal for whatever that means. We don't know if, you know, I, I don't know if my kids are going back into a physical school next year. Um, and I think for the next several months, there's a lot of guesswork in a lot of areas of our world. And, um, you know, it's just yeah. Every everything's a moving target right, is, now. right now, and and as soon as you think, you know, it's it, it you know, it's like, like throwing a curveball. It's 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 traveling the way it's traveling, and all of a sudden, it just it just moves completely where you didn't think it was going to go. And we have to. Everybody's got to be prepared for that. Um, John, I want to get a little insight from you as far as the Canadian cigar market and the Canadian cigar community. As far as you know, what whether you know what what's going on with pricing, what's going on with you know, uh, because in the states we know what things are like in the states, you know, as far as uh, quarantine and closures and gradual reopenings, but but I really don't know what it looks like for for the Canadian market. Well, I mean, the Canadian market, as we already kind of alluded to, is in big trouble. It was already in big trouble. It certainly didn't need the uh, pandemic to shuttered on the way out uh the biggest thing hitting this year was plain packaging which is going to be depending on who you ask whether you're drinking the kool-aid or you actually have an understanding of how the market happens and works in a post plain packaging environment uh plain packaging is basically going to wipe out tobacco in canada i mean that's it sounds it sounds very hyperbolic when i say that but it's it's true in most countries where they've had plain packaging is the reality is that a brick and mortar retailer really ceases to exist because it's a very tough market to to do business in, let alone the fact you've got a high tax market. Um, of course, the the double double edged blow to that is that we don't have the great thing that the United States does, which is cigar lounges, freedom, 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 freedom of speech, freedom, freedom everywhere. Um, you know, the idea that you could like. I'm still not accustomed to the concept that I can walk into a cigar lounge or a bar lounge in the United States and light up a cigar. I feel like I'm doing something wrong. 
I legitimately feel like you know I'm breaking the law. That's how foreign well, of a concept Washington. it is. What's that? You feel right at home in Washington. Yeah. Are they are they very anti-smoking in Washington now? In Washington, you legally can't have a cigar lounge at the same place that you sell tobacco unless it's on a right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Um, Charlie, I want to get your thoughts because in addition to covering uh, stuff in the states, you also have covered Intertobacco for a while. And, and kind of going back to the whole venue question as far as whether or not in the future we're going to see venues who, who refuse to take in any indoor smoking. Uh, do you think that's going to be a factor in the future? And if so, how soon? I think it'll actually be the opposite. I think that you're going to have all these venues that need to have events. And so, you know, look right. at what's happening on ESPN. You got Korean baseball. You got let, yesterday or Sunday, there was at one point MLS was on ESPN and there was second division U- U.S. soccer on ESPN two. under no circumstance would that ever occur except that ESPN <laughs> needs programming. And the same thing is going to go if you're Shepard or if you're I mean, the, the entire model of the Venetian, it was founded by a guy who ran a trade show. He realized that if he just got you in the building and kept you in the building the entire time, he could undercut a convention center, get money off gambling, get money off your room, get money off the bar, et cetera. And so I I think that there's a world that likely exists where it'll actually be easier and cheaper because they're just going to try to find events they're willing to, to happen. And if you're willing to take the space, then they'll figure out a way around it. And it's not like they're going to have 48 weeks of events next year. Um, I, I do hoping that we can go back to what Skip and, and Abe were talking about, because I, I think there's two yeah. points uh, that, that stand out to me about the sort of future of retailing, which is probably much more interesting to most of the people watching this. Uh, one of them is what Abe mentioned, which is, you know, his bar business has is, is gotten killed because of the restrictions. And, and I think that that's a, a major concern going forward, because if you think about a, a cigar shop, the only place they make money in a non-liquor environment is what's in the humidor. And most cigar shops are set up completely ass backwards. So the humidor is maybe 10% of the store if you count the register, which is also a money-making endeavor. And then the rest of the store is all space that that's a loss. It's just square footage and air conditioning and chairs and, and stuff that you can't really make any money on, even if you're charging people to sit there. And so the reality is, is that the, the cigar retailers that are going to be successful I would venture to guess in almost half the cases are going to be the ones that have liquor going forward. And that, that was something pre COVID. That was just the reality. You know, you go to any market where you can have smoking and liquor and you, you look at the stores that are expanding, you look at the stores that are opening up second locations and you look at the stores that are most importantly investing in their business. And it's almost always the ones that have liquor because they're able to monetize all that, that space. And I, I think the other part that I, I don't have a great answer to, uh, you know, for the industry going forward is we, don't realize that the the majority of the customers that buy cigars and, and this is probably indicative of every industry aren't the super passionate people the super passionate people at some shops probably make up half the sales and the majority of the sales but the reality is it's the guy that's going to the golf course that buys five cigars you know you see him twice a year or it's the person that needs to buy a gift or it's whatever it's not the people that are in there five days a week buying their two cigars and plopping down in the lounge and quite frankly those customers unless you have a bar aren't particularly profitable because they spend all this time here. So I think that 
we need to make sure that the brick and mortar is around. Otherwise, we're going to have as an industry a, a really tough time with customer acquisition because, it, you know, I imagine if Abe could survey his customer base, the amount of people that he has that walk into a smoke in for the first time that have smoked less than 10 cigars or haven't smoked a cigar a year and then they sit down and they get a drink and they're with some friends. There's a decent chance those customers are coming back, you know, within a month. And it, there's no way to really replicate that if the scenario is they buy cigars from Abe online. Because how, how would they even get to the point where they're buying cigars for Abe online if, you know, you're not a, a you know, a box a month customer? Because um, you probably just aren't willing to make that investment in, in buying that many cigars and or even thinking about buying that many cigars. That's one of those things that I'm going to the golf course and I'm supposed to bring cigars today, so I go and do it. Or I was at a frat party and I had a cigar, and now I need to go and you know I want to explore this more and get another one. Or you know somebody had a kid or a promotion or whatever it is. And and you know the online market's great for the people that are on this chat, but that's not all of the customer base, let alone probably half of it. And customer generation, and you know if someone has never smoked a cigar, I have no idea how you get them to buy their first cigar online. I just don't know what the pathway is that leads them to that decision-making process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I want to go back to John on, uh, on the sorry Canadian front. Um, what That's is 2% of the Canadian cigar market right there? That's, that's, that's like the, basically the amount of like five smokers in new England, I think is the equivalent. So in the States, I mean, we know that we've got the PCA and we've got the CRA. Is there an equivalent that uh, you you have in Canada that is fighting? Yeah, it's John. No, there, there was a um, there was a association of retailers uh, largely based out of Ontario. Uh, you know, I think they fought a pretty good fight. But for us, because I came, I actually was a, a retailer for some time. And it was made readily apparent to me in a very short period of time that, um, you know, once you give up a little bit of ground on the legislative front, uh, that's never coming back. There's, there's like, you know, I don't want to talk about cigarettes, but if you talk about cigarettes in the United States, there has been, as far as I'm aware, and Charlie can certainly correct me, there has been no new cigarette products in the United States since legislation came down to pr basically prevent new products from coming out of the market. And so the moment you give up any sort of legislative front for cigars, you're just moving that, that goal line one step further and it will never go back. And, and, you know, I preach it every time I get into a conversation with a cigar smoker is that you really, in the United States, you really have to take this quite seriously because, you know, now is certainly a time where there's a lot of uh, legislative fronts that are coming down on cigars. We see, uh, of course, the age for smoking has been raised to 21, which might not seem like a big deal, but every single one of those things amounts to a loss of freedom for cigar smokers in the United States. It's a very big deal, and it is truly a death by a thousand cuts. Now, obviously, the uh, deeming regulations are a lot more uh, impactful than that, but it, it does all add up to basically mean that it's it's diminishing the cigar industry, and unfortunately... As far as I'm aware, you can't turn that back once that uh, once that goes through. Yeah. Um, one thing that was already brought up, but I want to expand on it and get everybody's thoughts, because very recently the, uh, you know, the big official announcement, you know, came down that uh, packaging restrictions 
we're not going to have to worry about packaging restrictions, so-called, in the United States. But we all know how government regulations work. Um, so, um, Abe, I'm going to start with you. Do you do you consider that a victory? And do you think do you think it's actually you know do you do you think this is a is a long term thing or do you think it's just a concession price from uh, from the government powers? Um, I think it's a victory, but to what extent we don't know. Just because they you don't have to put warning labels doesn't mean they can't go to black and white packaging. You know, I mean. That's a whole different law. So, you know, is it a victory in itself? Yeah, anytime you win something in a case, especially in a federal court of law, it's a win. But I don't think it's solving any major long-term problems that we're going to face. Yeah. Um, Skip, what are your thoughts as far as the, uh, you know, the the victory over warning labels? Uh, do you think it's going to stick? Is it, you know, because they can all... all they can always bring back any regulation that gets shot down. Do you think it's going to stick long-term or do you think uh, we'll see it again in, in, in a few years? Well, you're talking about the, the most recent. Yeah. Um, Just last yes. week. So I disagree with Abe in the sense that the most recent um, ruling that came down actually is a negative for us. In my opinion, um, we had already won the case that premium cigars, a differentiated product, did not have to have these labels. We had already received that judgment months ago. The most recent um, ruling was that it applied to all the products under the deeming regulation. So you have to kind of, when it comes to warning labels, you have to kind of understand a couple of basic things. One, the biggest seven companies, which is probably 70, 80% of the premium cigars that are sold, are already required to put a Surgeon General warning on their products. They agreed with the Federal Trade Commission that they would do that. And they have to put it on their products, their matchbooks, their T-shirts, their ball caps, all of that. So General Cigar, Altidus, they've already been a part of that. Um, Drew Estate, when they were purchased by Swisher, became a part of that. Um, You know, companies like Perdomo, Rocky Patel, us, Alec Bradley, we don't have to do that. Um, so you can see how the, these companies feel like it puts them at a different, you know, uh, a, a competitive disadvantage. And and if you were on the board of one of those companies, you would say, we're not getting out of putting these labels on. So we want everyone to put these labels on. And that's the way they've approached the, the, the whole bailiwick. Right. In California, which which says that a state can do it. So you'll start seeing more states requiring these things. Um, California has their own version of a label, which is which has a hyperlink, which makes no sense to me. But the 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 that label um, isn't very obtrusive either. It's a small label. It's secondary to the Surgeon General label. Um, but the FTC has agreed with those seven companies that the California label suffices as a substitute for the other label that they agreed to. So they pretty much put the California label on everything. Um, so, you know, what I would say is that the, the – and Charlie knows more about the ins and outs of this, and I, I've read the rulings. But generally what they said was is that they didn't say that they, that they think labels are bad. They didn't say that it's a violation of the First Amendment. They didn't say that, that 35 percent is, is wrong. What they said was is that the FDA didn't follow the Federal Procedures Act. 
that they didn't follow the process. So in a sense, what they're saying is, is that the entire deeming regulation and the process and the things that came after that weren't fully vetted and they didn't follow the, the procedures act, which is bad for us in one particular way, which says that if they made some arbitrary decision, like for example, we're not going to regulate or enforce regulations for premium cigars because we think that's not a priority. Someone could sue the FDA and say, you're not following the Federal Procedures Act in regard to the enforcement of premium cigars. So saying that you're not following your own rules can hurt us or it could help us, right? In this case, it kind of helped us because it it pushes the, the ball back to the FDA. But now they get to reinvent and go through a whole new process to, 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 to do it the right way. And if they do it the right way, there's, there's no court saying warning labels are bad. They're saying, okay, well, now the FDA followed their process, put the warning labels on. So if, before it goes, yeah, I don't think there it's are really a couple things. So <laughs> yeah. it doesn't apply to all the deemed products. It only applies to cigars. So e-cigarettes and, and right. the rest of the deemed products are still in there. The, the other part is that, the, the court specifically said in the case of warning labels that the FDA didn't have any evidence that text-based warning labels are effective at getting people to stop smoking or not smoking. That's and what I that's, thought I read, yeah. That's because, which is part of the APA, the, the Administrative Procedures Act, the argument was was that they had to prove that what they were doing was effective and it wasn't just a theory and that the FDA didn't follow the process and tr- didn't provide any evidence that would suggest that, that it actually was going to be effective. But it wasn't to say that like they can just come back tomorrow and try again unless they somehow have evidence. And the problem is is that in order for them to have evidence, they would need to find a country or somewhere where they text-based warning labels have been introduced and there's a response that suggests that people have stopped smoking because of them and the body of literature on text-based warning labels is that that's just not the case. Now what they could do is come back and try to do graphic warning labels, which is what they're trying to do with cigarettes. Now, the Supreme Court has ruled that that's a violation of the First Amendment. And there's a whole bunch of other nonsense that goes along with that. I, but, you know, it, it was the case that the ruling that took place uh, a couple weeks ago doesn't help many people that are on this call. And, and, you know, we don't know what the definition of premium cigars was. Oh, man, where'd the beach go? Um, but... Uh, you know, we didn't know what the definition was of premium cigars was going to be. And that would have been an interesting case. And it also would have proved the, the CRA and IPCR, PCA talking points and the talking points that everyone repeats, which is we're not cigarettes, we're not Swisher Sweets, we're not, you know, e-cigarettes, etc. We are a differentiated product recognized by the government, which now uh, that, that differentiation has gone away. I, I will say one other thing that, you know, Skip and I don't disagree on anything. But one other point is that I think in the case of warning labels, I don't think the big companies are on board with the warning labels uh, for at least is how they were presented, because the one area where the warning labels arguably were going to be the largest problem was on the retail side of things, particularly on the e-commerce side, because the FDA hasn't defined advertising to this day. It has given examples of what it thinks might be advertising. But Abe's website, you know, if you read the definition, any e-commerce website presumably would be advertising. It's not just the advertising that the three media people here sell on their website. You know, Abe sends an email 
Does that have a, have to have a warning label? Because that's an advertisement to get you to buy cigars. And if that's the case, and, and most consumers don't give a damn about any of this, but the real issue wasn't Abe having to put a warning label on the email. He has, he has to plan the, it a year in advance. The issue was was that Abe had to fill out a warning label 12 months in advance, outlining what email he was going to send and what warning label he was going to put onto it. And that wasn't just the emails. That would be probably his website, all the event flyers that he does, anything that this, that he pod, does this podcast well this, this podcast mm-hmm. probably doesn't qualify yeah. as advertising as per well, the i mean example it has the Drew estate logo so. oh the Drew estate yeah Drew estate would have to to submit a warning plan that says here's all the advertisements we're going to use for cigar media for the year and that would be annoying and, and somewhat restrictive but a company like Drew estate probably knows what it's doing 12 months in advance or could figure it out but the idea of Abe having to schedule or any retailer, particularly small retailers, having to schedule an Oliva event 12 months in advance so they could tell the FDA what warning label they were going to use on the poster, that's crazy. And, and problematically is the, the catalogs that the big retailers send out, which the big manufacturers largely own, the emails that they send out on a daily basis, the websites, et cetera, all that stuff, it could have been catastrophic in terms of, of how cigars are sold. Um, not just on a brick and mortar level, particularly online, and and that's the you know the bulk of the industry these days. Yeah, and and the only way I can think of Charlie to get around that for somebody like Abe or Jeff is those emails that go out would essentially the only thing those emails would be able to say, or a Facebook post. You know, if they have a Facebook page, essentially the only thing they'd be able to say in an email blast or on a Facebook page is. We are a cigar store. We sell cigars. Here's the link to our store to go and buy cigars. They can't talk about any specific brands, any specific Vitolas, any specific tobaccos, nothing. No, that that's not part of it. It, it would just be that if Abe was going to send out an email and say, hey, last call on Pope of Greenwich Village, he would have to potentially tell the FDA that he was going to send that email 12 months in advance. I suspect that FDA would have been fine if Abe had said, hey, on July 15th, I'm going to send out an email to my customer list. Here's the warning label I'm going to put on there. There didn't seem to be any requirement for the copy to be finalized, like in terms of what was going to be in there. And there certainly wasn't any restrictions on what could be in that email. And this gets back to an ongoing problem, which is that the FDA didn't regulate cigarettes until a handful of years ago. And they didn't have any say in crafting any of those cigarette regulations. Most of the cigarette regulations were either through Congress in the 60s and 70s. That was what banned cigarette advertising on television. That's what required the Surgeon General's warning labels. And then MSA, which Skip alluded to much earlier in this conversation, which was a court settlement that the the largest cigarette companies made with attorney generals around the country in exchange for not having the, the states sue the cigarette companies for health claims. They agreed to give up a whole bunch of rights. Most notably, they gave up the rights to Joe Camel, um, and they gave up the rights to Camel Cash, Marlboro Bucks, etc. Um, and, and they also gave up the rights to all internet-based communication. Um, and so Marlboro, there is no Facebook page. There is no Twitter account. There is no, you know, there's a website that, that Altria has, but it, it, it's not there to sell you Marlboro products. And if you go on it, you can be very clear that it, it's a page for investors to find out how Altria stock's doing, not not about their brands. But but in general, the the problem we've had since May of 2016 is that the organization that's responsible for regulating us, I have no issue with regulation. 
Um, we sell a product that's supposed customers. to be, <laughs> we're supposed to be a product used by responsible adults, right? And and I have no problem uh, telling those people what the risks are. I have no problem telling those people, um, you know, what's in our product. I have no problem being honest and, and being kind of a little bit um, more conservative about how I try to market to the people. Um, the problem I have is that the people who are trying to regulate us don't understand our product. Uh, they've lumped us in with other products that are not like our product, and they don't understand how our industry works. Uh, so, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the issues that we have are... Please hold. <laughs> the issues that we have are based on the fact that the people that are regulating us do not have the resources to do it the right way and don't understand the market, the, the, the industry that they're trying to regulate. So, uh, you know, I, I have a factory in Nicaragua. I can tell you that there are a lot of opportunities for us to do things uh, cleaner and um, more honestly, um, you know, less bullshit, less fluff. But at the same time, I also think that a, a warning label that says cigars are not a safe alternative to cigarettes is also not true. Right. Right. If you start smoking premium cigars, it may not help your budget, but it's definitely going to be less of a negative health impact on you. Um, Go ahead. Go. (laughs) Yeah. So in a lot of ways, uh, the problem, the problem with the regulation is the regulations are designed by two kinds of people. One kind that doesn't want to that doesn't really give a shit and but doesn't want to stand up and be seen as an advocate for tobacco. And then the other kind that just wants all tobacco to be eliminated, period. And the people in the last group don't give a shit if it's fair or if it's accurate or if it's um, beneficial to the economy. They don't give a shit about any of that. Um, All they care about is they want to eliminate tobacco, period. Um, And then the the second group, to me, are the biggest bunch of cowards because you'll go to sit down in front of them like our congressman. You'll go sit down in front of them. You'll invite them here. Wow, I had no idea this kind of place existed. Look at all the details and the, the, you know, the craftsmanship and everything. And this is an amazing small business in, in my district. It's like, yeah, how about you get the FDA to back the fuck off? And, oh, well, I can't do that. Uh, well, are you for regulation? No, I'm not for regulation. But I, <laughs> I can't be seen as supporting big tobacco. It's like, bro, we're but not I big think tobacco. that inefficiency is the, is the heart of the problem. It's a, the FDA, if you gave most of those people the option about would you regulate cigars – particularly if they could, you know, regulate Swisher and, and Backwoods and not regulate Skip, that they would take that agreement. But they weren't the Absolutely. ones that got to decide what they would regulate. And unfortunately, they don't have any evidence that says that cigars are healthy for you. They, they don't add, have any... They, add, they absolutely want our FDA user fees. But to be, but to be honest user, with you... I don't think that the, it's five the cents user fees cigar. are guaranteed. Right. The user exactly. fees are set in a budget. It doesn't matter. It's just a matter of where it comes from. But they're going to get their $700 million and change this year, regardless of whether you sell any cigars or anyone sells any cigars. It'll just come if from you. cigarette companies. But the issue is, is that the people in Congress were the ones that told FDA, regulate all these products. And then, you know, they got to wipe their hands clean. And the people at FDA have to deal with how do we regulate all these products equally or w- so that the e-cigarette people don't sue us claiming that we're treating cigars, you know, unfairly in context of e-cigarettes. I now yield my time to Abe. <laughs> <laughs> Who's on mute. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would say in regards to the, to the, to the e- 
e-marketing, the email marketing you were talking about earlier, I had a question. So in theory, if we don't have to submit what the content is, wouldn't you just apply for every day next year with the warning label you were going to use? Well, yeah, but you would have to, I, I think in the email case, it'd be easy because you could just say, as long as they're not going to require the copy, which once again, there's no right. template here to figure this out. The email thing would be easy. The real issue would be is if you're a catalog, because you would have to say, this is the warning plan I'm going to use on page one, and this is the warning label I'm going to use on page two. Um, and you would run the risk of, because the, the warning labels are based on the idea that you're going to send out 100 communications in a year. And so 25 of them need to be warning label A and 25 need to be warning label B. And so the one area where you would potentially run some risk and would be what do you do if you suddenly don't ship a catalog? And so now you've lost 15 communications for that quarter, which now means you'd have to adjust and because you've told the FDA 25 communications are going to have this warning label on them. But if only 10 had it, the FDA expects you to evenly distribute those warning labels because there's five different ones throughout it and I, I just don't know how you would obviously the solution on the catalog end is you just make all the catalogs 88 pages or whatever it is and that's that's yeah. the and you ship them all the time but the the real kind of conundrum is if the law went into effect next week you would have to submit a year's worth of communication plans to the fda already well, well we already did that um, we did that back in um, March um, of last year, I think. And, and you know, look, it's all a moot point because the FDA has already said we have no intention of using any enforcement authority or resources to to regulate premium cigars. Well, that's all and, what they said. They said it was the lowest priority. Well, which means they're, they're not going to do it. They're not going to. We don't, if, we if don't they know what sense, that means. If they sent, well, that's true. But it, it, practically what it means is if they send someone into your store with a sting or with an inspector, what they're really trying to look for is they're trying to look for you, you selling vape pens or they're, they're trying to look to make sure that's, you're not selling that's utterly not true. Adultly. Well, you can go I'm online. There's I can a link. Tell you, you can go online. I can and, tell you this. I can tell you this for a fact. There is no, there is an FDA inspection required on every single import of every cigar that comes into the United States. The customs clears our, our products and then it goes over to uh, an FDA inspector. That is essentially a rubber stamp. And further, there has not been a single instance of someone walking into a retail premium cigar shop and doing anything other than age verification. There's no product verification. There's no. Uh, do you ha- did you come out but with how, a cigar that didn't exist that? on Aussie? Because not been filed yet. No, you, was this product on the market August of 2016? Yeah, there's no, but there, there's, we'll only know that scenario until once SE goes into effect because it just doesn't make sense for the FDA to do that right now because SE applications aren't in. So how would they, if you just say, hey, this is an SE product that I'm going to apply for registration for in August. Well right, well, right now there's already products that are coming into the United States that were not on the market in August of 2016. But what, I'm, what I'm saying, Skip, is that it's a moving target until SE goes into effect. Once SE's in effect, you can say, yeah. okay, this is this product. Do you have paperwork with the FDA to show that this is here? And that, at the moment... That, that's equally true today. Um, if, I were to, if I were to sell a, uh, our new product that we announced on Half Full this week, the, the Tartan Feathered, 
which is a 5x56 box press Whiskey Rebellion. That Whiskey Rebellion existed before August 2016, but that size existed in another Intemperance line, and I have personally f- figured that I am within the lines of bringing in 500 boxes of those cigars under a different brand because they're close enough to the Revenge to be the same cigar in terms of the definition of a product. But, but once again, once SC goes into effect, then the FDA will have the ability to say... But you're saying that law is not in effect today for that product? But because the SC re- registrations have aren't due... It doesn't matter. They said no new products after August 2016 that were not already on but the But they market. didn't require you to list what products you were selling on August yes, 8, 2016. Yes, yes, we have. We've done a registration, a product listing, an ingredients uh, declaration for all those products. Yes, but until SE go because you're going to apply for SE on Intemperance Whiskey Rebellion. Yes, but my point my point is as of today we import products that that were not on that were not theoretically were not on our uh, registration or our ingredients listing uh, that was due last year. My my point is all of this is about the ambiguity that's in the law, and the real risk isn't to me because if I get a shipment that's held at the border in Miami, I can simply turn it around and send it to Germany because those products are easily registered, uh, can easily be registered in, registered in the EU. Um, the risk is if Abe has a million dollars worth of products sitting on his shelves or $2 million worth of products sitting on his shelves, a task force coming in and saying, I want evidence that every single one of these products is a deemed product that that's, can legally be marketed in the United States either because it was on the market before SE deadline or because it has received a marketing order from an SE oh, application or because it was grandfathered. And so, so Abe, as a retailer, every time he orders from a manufacturer, is taking a risk of bringing in product that eventually could be deemed an, an adulterated product. Yeah, but that eventually process starts with you. It doesn't start with Abe. They have to send a letter to you. You have a certain amount of time to respond to it. They deny it. Then you have a 30-day period of safe harbor to tell all the retailers, hey, this product has to be removed by October 1st. We'll take it back, or you have to destroy it. It's it's not a it's not like they're going to come into Abe's store and say, hey, this intemperance whiskey rebellion is illegal without well, contacting that's what, that's, you, you, the that's importer. That's what Nick Perdomo is telling everybody. No, but, yeah. but, the, but like the real <laughs> risk here, before I we know my time to Abe. We, we would have, I'm sorry, Charlie. We would have no way to prove or show what paperwork are filed. It's not in our. It doesn't makes no sense. The, the way that people are doing it, Abe, is they're they're sending um, notifications from their attorneys, like CI and and other com- big famous and other big companies are sending notification to manufacturers saying you have to certify to us legally that these are that these are not adulterated products, and if for any reason. They're deemed adulterated. You have to compensate us for this inventory. Yeah, but that's just covering their ass in case you get in trouble. But, like, I I think it's also worthwhile to go back to, like, what FDA actually was doing before they suspended enforcement. Like, I think people in the cigar industry live in this world where the FDA just hasn't busted any cigar retailers. Like, like not people that are selling a whole bunch of products, but a whole mess of, like, that are just premium cigar stores, cigar stores that you and I have been into. 
And you can go on the FDA database and start looking around. And there are stores that have gotten in trouble multiple times, not for selling e-cigarettes, but for selling cigars to an undercover person who was underage. And that's you the big go online and they list the products and they're listing out New World Connecticut's and Ashton ESGs. They're not list like there are the, the e-cigarette components and the, the Swisher Sweet stuff. But like there are cigar retailers, big cigar retailers who are very successful, who have gotten in trouble not just once, but but twice and, and sometimes more in this very short period of time. And that's something, it, it, not to get back into the, the PCA discussion, but like that's something that the PCA should be doing with or without a trade show. They should be telling their retailers, because many people just don't know this. I had a conversation with a, a decent-sized manufacturer a couple months ago, and he was clueless to the idea that dozens, if not hundreds, of his accounts had gotten in trouble for selling cigars to undercover agents. And this shit's going on, and, and they're eventually going to, to have a retailer who's going to get suspended for 30 days from selling cigars. And that won't matter whether or not they, you know, it's as premium cigars, the lowest enforcement. That won't matter if warning labels are suspended. That won't matter if SE gets extended out till eternity. That That's a reality of what FDA is going to do, because honestly, it's the easiest and cheapest way for them to do enforcement. It's the one way they know how to do enforcement, because they've been doing right. it in cigarettes for many years. I now no. yield my time back to Ape. <laughs> no, I, I, compl- I completely no, we, agree with we, that. No, I said Abe, not Skip. We, <laughs> we get we get tested. We get tested. I'd say every year uh, between all our locations, at least four or five times, they'll send somebody in to buy tobacco product, and we we don't know until after the fact. They'll send a letter saying that we sent somebody and tested you into your store and you carded them. So they're, they're on the lookout. But you know the problem that we look the problem that we experience regularly at the retail level even with some COVID regulations going on, right? It, it, it all depends on the method of enforcement because if the enforcement on the street level seldom interprets what the law is. We run into this all the time, right? So, we, you know, we have an ABT uh, department who came in and ABT's job, their sole mission, as far as tobacco is concerned, is to make sure that everybody, every nobody's skimping on tax that they're supposed to collect. Right. Okay. I only sell cigars, and we have um, very few domestic cigarettes, and only only the ones with my bar that have a little bit more of an eclectic nightlife. We might have like six domestic cigarette brands, and the rest of it's all imported, right? So I'm either getting my cigarettes from Phillips and Kings, or we go to the local Costco. So. We pay the tax there when we buy it. And there is no tobacco tax in Florida. Why are they auditing me? There, there's literally no tax for you to collect from me. There's no tax I could be skipping on you. And you don't even you don't even it. have to have a permit in Florida, right? No, no, I have to have a tobacco license. Oh you, okay. Right? Because because I could be selling pipe tobacco or things that there is an OPP tax, but I don't sell anything in my shop that has an OTP tax and I mean, ones other than the stuff that I've already paid when I buy it. So there's absolutely nothing that audited me for, or, or for them to well, catch. I mean, they have to, they have to justify their existence somehow. Well, this is the problem that we had, we, you know, Jeff from Corona, you know, cause we had a situation down here where they, they changed the law. I mean, here's a perfect example. The law was written about a month or two ago where, if you served, if fifty percent of your business wasn't liquor, you could still serve alcohol, and I think that was geared up so the restaurants 
could open up their bars as an ancillary business to their restaurant business. And all of us fell into that, you know, window, that mandate. So we were all able to exist and open up our cigar bars. Then a couple of weeks ago, they changed the law where the law now said the 50% margin didn't matter. If you had food service, you could sell liquor. If you didn't have food service, weren't licensed for food service, that you can't sell liquor. So now we're we're thinking we got to close our bars up again because so, of COVID, right? Because of COVID. But here's the thing: like we're thinking we're trying to tighten the law, but it really was the opposite effect in retrospect. Because I ended up calling Ryan Leeds from Empire Cigars down here in Miami, and then we got Jeff from Corona on the phone. We're all talking about it because I can't see in my mind any reason to make that legislation other than to single cigar bars out. That we're the only people that get affected by that. The cigar bar is the only business I could think of that would have less than 50% liquor sales, but not serve food, right? right. So, so we literally ended up calling the Department of Regulations for Florida, and we had an email, and, and Ryan uh, knew, knew uh, the deputy there who we did, had email correspondence with before, and he sends us a, an email back saying that, well, your your bars, your cigar bars are allowed to be open as long as you have fifty percent capacity in our practice social distancing, and we're all like looking at this and this is exactly not what the law says. Now, Ryan had already had somebody in there trying to close them down. Jeff had a guy in there just that Sunday. This is July Fourth weekend. Jeff had a guy in Corona that Sunday that said that he couldn't sell water or coffee from the bar. And nowhere just it just says you can't serve liquor. So right. the people the people on the street are interpreting it wrong. And then the guy from the 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 the, 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 the Department of Regulation is saying, Well, no, if you use this email, if anybody walks in the street as evidence that you have permission, because so now I'm thinking about so what they tried to do was they tried to loosen the laws for the restaurants. So the restaurants that maybe had 70% liquor, only 30% food, they wanted them to be able to open up their bars, even though it didn't appear that way. But by doing so, they didn't think about cigar bars, and we just became casualties of the process. So if this is going on here on a local level, I can't imagine what's going to happen with the FDA and how they're going to try to enforce, regulate, check i mean i mean that's I, what I and that goes that goes back to what i was saying about the people who are regulating you we're so small and they don't understand the way we work you know the majority of the people who 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 sell premium cigars that i know at least the people we sell to they want to follow the laws they want to follow the rules they don't want to sell the people who are under 21 they don't want to sell products that have all kinds of bullshit in them um, that make them more dangerous. They don't. They don't want to sell anything that's addictive. They 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 just want to follow the rules. And the problem is you you don't understand the rules. And so that kind of brings us back full circle to the point I was making about C PCA, which is that's the benefit. That's the need. The demand. The reason why we have to have a trade organization so they can stand up and and, and operate state organizations and at the federal level. They, that, so they can explain to people who are making these rules the way we work and so that they can communicate to all the people who are members 
what the rules are in simple terms and how to comply with them. And, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a free democracy where the people who are trying to prohibit, you know, the, 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 the temperance movement that's trying to prohibit tobacco altogether, if you eliminate them and you just talk about the people who are trying to do the right thing for the, the average person in the United States, we have to have an organization that's effective. And when you just lay every single person who works for your organization off, except for the volunteer board members, what the fuck? What what the fuck are we paying premiums for? What the the next step is A, we recognize we need an organization. B, you've completely fucked up this one. If you aren't gonna change it, then we're gonna start a new one. And we're not going to pretend it's a consumer organization. We're going to, we're going to make sure it, people understand it's a manufacturer's organization or a manufacturer retail organization. And we're going to go and, and have them fill this void. And we're not going to pay a bunch of fucking legal fees to fight you know, windmills. We're going, to, we're going to pay these fees so that they can communicate to lawmakers what we do as a business and, and, and how we comply with the core of what they're trying to accomplish and then communicate to the members how we stay compliant. And well, everything and that, else in between is just bullshit. Oh, you had your chance. That, See, John, that. look at all the things you don't have to worry about. <laughs> you, Absolutely. Look at all the fun shit you miss living up in Canada. <laughs> well, we don't we don't miss a lot of this stuff living up in Canada because we already have had a it. lot of it. Yeah. yeah. Everything's illegal in Canada. Every, so. Everything's illegal. We have except, you except know, for marijuana. I mean, if you're in the marijuana, marijuana business, yeah. But the but the, the the state owns the marijuana and alcohol business, <laughs> so you're in pretty good shape in Canada. Yep. So that actually skip that leads into the next question that was on my list, um, and to kind of set it up, um, you know, recently the announcement came out that the PCA was furloughing the entire staff. And dumbest thing ever. So before before the you know before the announcement was was made public, um Scott Pierce, who's the executive director of the PCA, had a call for Cigar Media to what was sold as this meeting was supposed to be to give us the information before the rest of the membership so that we could publish the information so that people could learn about what was happening. And it's, it's don't get me wrong. It, it is a sad situation when any organization has to furlough their, their entire staff, whether it's a big corporation or whether it's a small organization like the PCA, but I'm not going to go into all the ins and outs of it, but the, the call was a dumpster fire. Um, <laughs> and, but, but I want to know, you know, from everybody on the panel, just in general, I, I have to be honest, and and this is not nothing personal against any individual person. It's about it's about the way organizations are managed and run. Do you? And John, I'm going to start with you because I haven't heard your beautiful voice in a while. But do you think that the PCA, as an organization and the governing board, is a well-run? And well-managed organization, and if not, why? God, Skip, <laughs> if you turn this into seven minutes, I'm gonna kill you. Uh, I mean, that no, be two I, separate I mean, questions. By yeah, the way. it's two, it's two separate questions. But I, I yeah. think, I think they honestly do. I, I really do think they are trying. Um, are they effective? No, I don't think they're effective. And I think this this furlough couldn't have come at a 
I mean, it, it came at literally the worst possible time within the entire legislative effort that's that's happening right now. If you're going to furlough the staff, furlough them in November. Don't furlough them before, what is it, two months before all of this is supposed to hit the fan? Like Six weeks. So, yeah, like that's, you, you got to look at the big picture. And, and that's kind of been the whole problem this entire time is that nobody is looking at the big picture. No, it's, it's a disastrous move at a disastrous time. And uh, yeah, <clears throat> I think they try, but no, I don't think they've been very effective. It's like that scene in uh, Red October where the Russian submarine captain that's chasing the Red October, where the guy turned to him and says, you've killed us all, you fucking asshole, <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> you arrogant bastard, or whatever the fuck he says, you've killed us all. It's like that moment. Yeah. Um, Charlie, I'm going to go with you next on this one. No, I, I previously went on record that I think that the board should be removed or resign however you want to call it but um i mean i've written twenty thousand words on this in the last 12 months so uh there, there's a lot I, I think one you know this this conversation the the ones that we were previously having not about the trade show but just about regulation and then you know on the macro and on the micro level highlights a lot of the deficiencies here which is that the organization just consistently outside of their mismanagement of the trade show or their inability to change has problems when it comes to identifying what the, the pertinent questions are for their members, whether they're retailer or manufacturer. And, and too oftentimes seems like they're a bit late or they're not proactive about trying to, to not just get ahead of on the lobbying side of things. I think in some instances they've done a good job on that, but in, in having the conversations with the industry about what the industry as a whole wants. And I, I think, you know, rather than just deep diving into the, the list of issues, I think one thing that's very apparent is that, you know, the, the homogenous nature of the board, the, the executive committee that controls the PCA, where it's, you know, outside of the, the director, it's five retail members who, generally speaking, you know, run very similar businesses, uh, they're all independent, brick and mortar, usually multi-locations. Some of them have bars, some of them don't. Um, you know, and we now have one that's got a, a mail order, a substantial mail order business with Emerson's and Scott Regina. But it's just not a diverse group of people. And so oftentimes, you know, the amount of emails they send out about PPP and about the lobbying for, you know, tax code and employee changes, uh, you know, on the, the federal level versus you know, trying to answer the questions that, that Abe had about, you know, how does his bar business go forward or whether it's about the, you know, potential implications of the warning labels. It, it just isn't, it, it's not enough and it's, it's not effective. And, you know, I sort of wonder if you had to list everything that PCA does in a calendar year and then just, you know, yes or no, was this effective or was this not effective? I, I suspect that a lot of it would fall in the, the, the second category. And then the list of things of like, where were the missed opportunities? Um, you know, it's crazy. I, I know they had issues with the Venetian and CBD, but it's absolutely insane to me that last year at the trade show, they didn't have a panel about CBD because I think if you pulled 10 retailers from various parts of the country, different sizes, you know, different ages, et cetera, you, you would find that CBD was one of the top two topics that these people had questions about. And there was just a complete missed opportunity and not in the restay. I know he's, paying attention it's not about the selling cbd cigars but just in terms of if i was a cigar retailer and wanted to sell cbd what does this look like 
Um, that seems like something that's very simple and would be an easy win and a beneficial win for the PCA. And I'm not sure they even considered doing it, to be quite honest, because they're just going to roll out the guy that sells pet food for a living to tell you how to use coupons effectively. <laughs> <laughs> or how to rescue your restaurant. Yeah, so are we are we seeing the end of the PCA? And going to what Skip was saying earlier, you know, you kind of fold that shop up and start another one? I don't think it would be efficient to, to completely start over. I mean, that would be really stupid. Um, but, you know, Riz, speaking of Risty, you know, Risty and I, Risty has a, an importer, Andrew, who, who was trying to do the, you know, DIY FDA compliance from the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. They submitted grandfather applications. They submitted some of the first SE applications. Somewhere in the middle, you have like people like us that are paying really close attention, um, trying to do things through an attorney, but also not trying to go you know too far over our skis. And then you had you know the CRA kind of cabal that you know w- was going to con- convince you know through through you know Trump was going to save us all, and we're going to hire a bunch of lawyers at eight hundred dollars an hour, and we're going to um, carve out you know some kind of solution. Well. I remember looking at the at the balance sheet for the you know the the the, the IPCPR a couple of years ago with this huge kind of like four million dollar war chest, this townhouse, you know, all of the you know this healthy P and L, and then now um, they're they're laying off the very fucking people who are supposed to be doing the day to day work. And it's like how, you know, by any measure of any organization, as a stakeholder, a stockholder, a contributor, a member, whatever the fuck you want to call me, Charlie, you know, Abe, if, if you look at the beginning and then you look at where we are now, the entire organization has been mismanaged. And I don't think it's because of Scott Pierce or Christine Morgan or the, the legislative person who's doing the day-to-day work. I agree. It's because it's because the entire organization has been financially and mismanaged and has they have mismanaged their trade show. They have mismanaged communication. They've mismanaged relationships. They have five or six key stakeholders from the retail side, from the manufacturing side. They get in a room and decide things. Then they do a press release to Cigar Aficionado. And then supposedly everybody else is supposed to just fall in line, which we've essentially done, except that the results are garbage. Well, the, the so, falling in line thing happened because for decades, to my knowledge, it wasn't relevant. You know, there right. weren't FDA regulations. They would well, go it was out relevant. It was relevant in the state. I can tell you from a guy who yeah, was in Texas. State, I was about to get there. On the yeah, state level, yeah. the funding they did uh, on that side was certainly important. But people, you know, I mean, I remember walking into IPSPR panels years ago and there would be like i think a year before the fda regulation showed up there were 20 people in the room six of them were on stage there were 20 people in a conference room and it was like what the fuck the reg we know the regulations are coming soon this is after 2014 like it's only a matter of time and then you know shit hits the fan in 2016 and all of a sudden they have to do two overflow sessions in a supersized room and you know so much of this i think would be solved I don't really have any knowledge of how other trade organizations work, but before I yield my time to Abe so that he can speak, <laughs> I think that the biggest annoyance and an easy solution would just be to have a more open dialogue 
you know, we don't know what the PCA's budget looks like. We know what it looked like at the end of 2018, and there was a whole mess of money in it. And now we're told that the trade show and what's happened in 2020 has been disastrous financially to the point where they have to furlough the entire staff, which raises the question of the fuck are they doing? But like, not like what's the money, but like, what is the PCA doing if you furlough the entirety of the staff? Like, what's the point of having a PCA? Let me tell you, let me no, tell you though, no, Charlie. Not, no, not, hold on, hold on, not real quick. My time before, to before you yield to Abe, not one time is anyone to, to get away from you. Not any, not one time as a board member, um, a, a manufacturing interested partner, or a staff member from the PCA, other than a two-hour conversation I had with Scott Pierce. Has anyone ever called me and said, hey, Skip, you're a manufacturer, you're a small member. Can you do something to help us out financially to help us with the battle? The answer out of my mouth would have immediately been, I got $40,000, $50,000 for you right now. I can wire it to you tomorrow. However, you have to amend the, the rules that the board abides by to have open elections. You have to have a manufacturing interested people on the board. You have to have media people on the board. You have to do something to diversify your revenue stream. I will absolutely cut a check tomorrow if you guys involve yourself in an earnest effort to reform the way the organization functions. So I'm just getting like before that, like you keep mentioning there are these, you know, the manufacturing parties that are part of the the decision making. Like, who are those people? You go on the PCA's website. They're not identified like this is the board members of the CRA. but this is, this is the issue is like it so much of it's done in secret and right it's just not right. a good way to run a trade organization as far as i'm concerned i now yield my time to Abe. thank you charlie if it wasn't for you i probably couldn't say a word on this thing. no you'd be that's like john on mute abe that's not true i'm busting balls so no listen i'm just trying to keep track because I'm, I'm i'm trying to remember all these things Take i notes. want to say is as you guys are both bringing up great points here and john's watching the show um <laughs> he's canadian None of it applies to Canada. First off, Scott Pierce isn't the guy to be blamed for anything because unless something has changed dramatically from what I know, I don't care who they put in that position. The board decides something they want him to put in an act. He's an advisor at best unless they've changed the authority, which I doubt that ever happened because when I was on the board, and I can't even remember how long ago it was, eight, maybe 10 years ago, right? They were stuck back then in an era in an era that was already gone. So, and they're still here today. And it comes down to a problem: is that look, I'm I'm just telling you, as a guy who's on the board, that one hour phone call in a month isn't doing anything. The the gathering twice a year, you know, doesn't do anything. And and they they need to, like really the whole structure doesn't doesn't is not set up for any kind of evolution any kind of success any kind of openness and and, and who knows what they're doing now because nobody knows i mean they didn't have they had a nice war chest and a budget when i was on, on there and you know we do need an organization for stuff like fda and stuff that you've mentioned charlie and skips mentioned just just as on an organizational level look there are times I can't even keep track of what the laws are and what states I could ship to and not ship to. Who am I calling? You know, I, 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 and believe you, believe me when I tell you, I call some of my other big friend retailers and they're not sure. You know, so you need that. But the way it's set up now is extremely problematic. And like you said, you know, 
it needs to become either like run by a private entity that runs it for an on-profit business and employee. I don't know if furloughing, unless you guys know something that I don't, I don't know if furloughing the staff is is eminent of their budget or they're broke. Unless somebody really knows something I know, because I could totally see this board wigging out. Oh, we made no money. What are we paying these people for? Because in essence, let's face it, what is the board really doing other than putting on a trade show? Right. That's well, what I'm saying. But what so, it is well, indicative so, of, uh, Abe, it's indicative of how much they value the daily work of the staff of the I. So either you're but, saying that we've been paying these people for nothing or we no longer see a mission for ourselves. No, that's exactly what I think they're saying is we're, we've been paying them now for a month or two. There's nothing going on. There's nothing that they're really working on. Exactly. So, so I don't know if the furloughing is more a look, there's no reason to waste money. Unless somebody's heard or knows something that I don't know, because I really can't the imagine. Issue is, Abe, going, if the furloughing is this is a way to not waste money. Then why is the staff there in February and March and April? Right. Okay. So, okay, so it's listen, like throwing it's like throwing your fucking oars in the water. Okay. So so here's it's the thing. Like, so let, let what's me, the point? I'm going to tell you. So here's the thing. So so let me just tell you something. Right. The board is not. And I, you know, I got to be careful here. The board does not have the most savvy entrepreneurial business people, financial planners, outlookers on it, right? And kind of hasn't historic, historic, historically, right? Um, I think one of two things happens when you get that kind of a dynamic person on the board. One, they don't get along with the rest of the board, right? And two, they realize that, hey, what am I working here for? It is like, you know, we're going around doing nothing. It's just a complete waste of time. So, um, I can see a room full of people saying to themselves, well, you know what? I mean, nobody minds paying them to do nothing if they made a lot of money at a show, right? That's just the way it's been. But now something different's happened. We lost, lost our only revenue stream, which the board should really figure out how the trade show should not be their pretty much predominant revenue stream, right? The Almanac used to be partial of it, and I don't know if the Almanac is making them Still really is, money anymore. But it, the Almanac yeah. wouldn't exist without the trade show. Of course. So they need to figure out other revenue streams so that it can exist to do what a trade association is supposed to do. So I, I don't know really furloughing them. I, I could see a room full of, of, of yeah, remember the guys who are making the decisions are, are retailers, you know, some of them not, you know, maybe not even the best retailers. Right. So I could see them saying, Oh, we, we, we didn't make the X number of dollars we're supposed to make. Well, we could, we could offset some of that by not wasting this payroll. We don't need to really start working on a trade show for another yeah, three but or four they, months. They cut all of their lobbying contracts. Like this is the this is the problem. Is that, and I think I know this probably better than anyone. When you publicly criticize the PCA, or I guess even privately, the first response is, "Well, look at all the legislative stuff that we do for the industry. Look at all the the fighting that we're doing," and so. Yeah, the proof the proof is in the eating of the pudding. You when know, you are I don't sell to those things, I don't sell just them talking anyway. in general. Um but <laughs> I don't sell when, to them anyway, so fuck I don't give a shit. I'll tell you but what like, I think. it's you know, it, it's a catch twenty two. Like either A, all they're doing is running a trade show, which I don't think is the case. They're contributing substantial amounts of money to the FDA lawsuit and they've been spending substantial amounts of money on lobbyists. Now there can be a debate about whether either one of those things is effective, but that's not really 
the conversation that anyone's having. It's, it's more of the question of why does this entity exist and why does it exist in a world in which you furloughed people? And, and one thing that, that I have a lot of discomfort with is the idea that those retailers who aren't personally invested to a large extent, I'm sure they're, they've contributed some money, but that war chest that existed was money that was largely generated through manufacturers to the trade show and whatever. But most importantly, it wasn't their money. They weren't going to, like, if they chose to, to furlough these people, they don't get any of that money, to my knowledge, and hopefully not, because that would be no, very problematic. No, no, so no, they no, no, they don't get a dime. They made a decision to, to furlough, not to lay off, but to furlough these people temporarily, who knows how long, rather than dipping into the war chest. And so when the media people were on that phone call and there was discussions of these are these people's livelihoods and we take this decision very seriously, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's like, well, if you had millions of dollars in the war chest, how much money are we talking about? Three quarters of a million dollars to get through the end of the year to pay all these people? Like, why not dip into it so that we, A, have a functioning organization and B, so that these people's livelihood isn't negatively impacted, particularly in a world in which it's not coming out of your own bank account. It says, it says everything. It says everything, Abe, that they, that they will, that they would decimate the, any capacity for their people to do anything at the same. Go ahead. I get you, but all I can say, all I can say is, look, I don't like to assume what goes on in the business boardroom or people's minds, right? Because I've been on it page of making a decision and you want to know what you don't know what fear they have it's really easy to say oh what's it gonna cost you uh say they got five million what's it gonna cost you a million to make it through the year well a million which is 25 percent of the war chest you've accumulated in the last 85 years is a lot of money when you're not even sure if you're gonna have a trade show next year so it could be regrouping i mean look the fact that they don't you're right there's not a transparency there's not a communication you don't know if the sink the ship is sinking or they're literally regutting the whole system and trying to build something from the ground up again. I, I doubt it's the latter, but you know But it would be a lot easier to accept this if they came out and said, Hey, look, absolutely. we've lost a million and a half dollars this year in profit. Uh, this is what we are potentially looking at if we can't raise some money. And mm-hmm. so count and then, the pen and then, and then find a way to raise more money. But the, yeah, the, but the it says everything that they are not willing. Look, if, if you want to know what they've really accomplished in the last three years, it's preventing the trade show from being moved in, moved to a point where it competes against another trade show. Because because first and foremost, it seems like the only thing that they've accomplished is protecting their smaller organization. But that I, I don't think that's to. fair. I mean, they got the warning labels in January for premium stuff or February pushback. They got SE pushback. I mean, the organization has funded efforts that have been successful for everyone involved. I agree, but, but, and that's but, why but I started funding. with it, the, the organization itself. Look, if you want to know anything that they've, they've that we've collectively, not just five people, but we all as an industry have collectively accomplished in the last four years, it's broadening the message that we make a product that's different than other tobacco products, and that you should care about us. And in a, lar- in a very significant way, they've been very successful in doing that. Whether that's turned into real action or not is a different discussion. But I, I can actually go talk to my congressman, and he has heard this message, and he understands this bill. He understands what the battle is. He understands FDA regulation. And that's been accomplished through the efforts of the CRA and the PCA. 
I think I, I think one thing. Whole... I just sorry. Go ahead, John. I just want to quickly hop in and say I think it's it's probably very easy to dismiss a lot of this discussion as straight up criticism, but you know at its heart I think all of this comes from a place of all of us want to see the PCA and their efforts as successful. We want to see the board be successful. We want to see the trade show continue to be successful. But you know the the big message that we're obviously communicating is that it has not been successful, and the whole point of this discussion is I think talking about ways that it can be successful so i just want to get that out there because like i said i think it's too easy to dismiss a lot of this conversation this discussion is you know just picking on the pca or picking on the uh the board and that's not really the goal the goal is to move the board and move the decision making to a place where it is successful and effective for its membership and that's why i started my discussion with they're critical to our success as a manufacturer and they're critical to the success of our retail partners and and that's where we start and that's where we end. There has to be some organization that does the things that we need them to do. John, I'm not I'm not I, I don't want my my statement my statements to be misinterpreted, right? My statements of the board is not so much also just critical of their ability or but it's just a re- reality, right? I don't know how I could run my company on a 1-hour phone call a month successfully, you know, and not be really vested in it. These are people who are volunteering, right? They're not getting paid for their time. And um, it's a struggle. It's a thankless job. And they're trying to run a trade show. So what's the realistic expectation of what we can expect out of these people? So it's, it's, it, the, structure, the structure is almost a defeatist structure from, from the beginning. You know, there are situations in place, like, like Skip said, I don't know why a person on the board who want who, they they sit in a room and they pick well who's a good candidate and then they come up with three or four of their own nominees and then the board votes for who gets to be on the board right you can't just say hey I'd like to be involved in this process so there are a lot of like old you know good old boy rules that have been in existence like forever and they've never adapted they've never changed but just the internal structure um, I I really think the most optimal future. For a trade organization, and the problem is that you know Charlie and Skip would probably be more knowledgeable than me on this, because I think just politically they wouldn't know how to align it. But there should be one show, the TPE and the and the, and the, and the PCA. It should just be one show. Well, and that I, that I agree. I don't I don't care if TPE is the only show. Um, we can make <laughs> TPE what we want it to be. They want to make money just like the PCA. We would just well, have to figure out how to fund the PCA in some other way. Well, I mean, why wouldn't the TPE just acquire the PCA and and they just run it? Well, they, they I'll, increase I'll their start. Premium, they increase their premium footprint presence instead but of. Can we start? Being, yeah. So can we start with this fact that the part of the reason why the camel's nose is under the tent in the very first place is because Cretic International started turning uh, the jarums and all these other products into products that needed to be regulated because they're quote unquote became cigars. So. You know, look, Phillips and King and their board and their CEO and their employees are going to do what they're going to do that's best for Phillips and King. And the majority of that is not has nothing to do with my business. And so while we may participate in a, in a substantive way with TPE, but if our buyers, if our retailers deem that the place where they want to do business with us. But I'm not in the business of keeping Phillips and King in business, just like you're not in the business of keeping Jeff at Corona in business. 
But the, there are things that are good for Jeff that are also good for you, right? Yeah. And this, I, I just want to go on record in saying that before I get another drink, because God knows <laughs> I need one. That I, I, <laughs> I don't so, think, just so you know, Charlie, I asked, I, I asked Sean to bring me rum for for my rum and coke. He brought me a five hundred dollar bottle of rum, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, we're out that's, of that's a party the, fell. I mean, you're yeah, not buying anorized this yeah. year at the trade show. You talked about <laughs> all that money you saved. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but I, I don't think it's it's in anyone's best interest for there to be either this illusion or this proponent of an idea that there's only one trade show. I, I think that competition is good. And the other issue is, I, I think, as we've learned with the PCA discussion, you can say whatever you want about the CRA, but you know, putting all your eggs in one basket in any capacity seems like a really bad idea. And and in the legislative basket, I can assure you, and Abe, I'm sure you're aware when you were on the board of the sort of backroom discussions that took place in the legislative side of things, like there's not universal agreement within the industry. And this industry is so small compared to not just the other products that are deemed the e-cigarettes, smaller than that industry, the machine made cigars, smaller than that industry. But then when you expand it to smokeless and cigarettes or a, a, a tiny you know, nose hair compared to what those industries are. And so, you know, we need the ability to have, you know, multiple outlets and discussions. And, and more importantly, in a world in which one organization's got $5 million allegedly in the bank and they're not doing a good job, there, there needs to be the alternative of, you know, how much better would this be if the CRA was a something beyond just a, as Skip referred to it, a cabal that funded a lawsuit. <laughs> well, and, well, I mean, what, I, I'm sorry. I just want to say this real quick. Because yeah, I was talking to Charlie. You know, you talk about the CRA funding legislature, but that's not work, right? I could stroke a check, right? So, I mean, being able to provide funding for lobbyists or, or things, I don't know how much of that ends up being day-to-day work for them. But, you know, it, it, you know, ah, I forgot my point. Sorry. But if the CRA well, was was really good at their advocacy job, then this would be a pretty easy discussion. Skip would write a check to the CRA and all the other never, people never. that didn't. Yeah, I understand that. But all the people that said, <laughs> hey, look, the only reason why we're going to this trade show is because it funds the lawsuit. It funds lobbying would just turn their money to the CRA. And that's that's not what happened. And that's how the CRA was born. It was born out of, you know, the CAA, which for the longest time was the manufacturer's organization. You know, when S chip one came around, and push came to shove, the CAA people said, fuck the premium world because the real money is in the machine-made stuff. And then all the premium people, or most of them, left and created the CRA. Now, the CRA was not formed that way. CRA was formed because I was in the room when the idea yeah. started. <laughs> the CRA formed because the industry needed an organization. When we went to Congress, we weren't representing a thousand cigar retailers. Right. So we were, we were trying to emulate a consumer based group modeling off the NRA, right? So that, so that this organization could have some weight, political weight. What happened was they could never fund themselves via the consumers. Consumers didn't care to sign up and they ended up relying on the manufacturers to fund it. So instead of becoming a consumer based organization, all it became now is a manufacturer. That, that's right. It, it, what it became is it became the vacuum that that PC, that IPSPR or RTDA or whatever you want to call it. The vacuum that the manufacturers did not have a say or a voice, and they didn't feel comfortable putting hard dollars 
into an organization run by five retailers. And so no, they, they were at the CAA. They, they co-opted a consumer organization so they could come into the room. And I've been in the I've walked the halls of Congress, walked into rooms where we say, I'm here representing three million cigar smokers, which really I'm here representing, you know, t- 10 manufacturers. Right. And the people who contribute a little bit of money for they, they paid twenty five dollars for a membership for fifty dollars worth of cigars in a re- round. Right. <laughs> and so so but I'll tell you this. You know, we exist as a company because of consumer advocacy. And if I made a hard appeal to our consumers to contribute 15 or $25 and a little bit of their time to filling out some information, they would absolutely do it. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to bring those, that power to bear or, 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 or Alan, you know, whoever, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bring that power to bear so that Rocky Patel can get his way in his little table of 10 people who are deciding the way the rules should be. Look, I can tell you, this is where I was going earlier with, with about Risty is that Risty and I sat down and he can tell you in the comment section or whatever, this is true or not four years ago. And I said five or six things and rock and Risty said five or six things. We said, look, the, the, the substantial equivalency should be based on a single cigar. It's not based on all this bullshit, blend bullshit, size, quantity, everything. It's based on X, Y, Z. This is the way we should proceed. We should create a database. We should submit a generic uh, uh, substantial equivalence application, and we should get advocates within the FDA to work with us on how to be regulated in a way that works for us as an industry. And instead, we spent $2 million at $800 an hour with DC fucking power FDA uh, law firms that have previously uh, 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 represented cigarette companies on how to, to to carve out how to fuck these little guys and how to make the, the big guys happy so that the, the, the big middle guys could exist uh, in a way that, that creates a competitive advantage. We, we you know, the whole the whole entire process from the very beginning has been a, a total abortion. And at the end of the day, what it boils down to is what Abe said. What, what, what are my regulatory environment that I have to work in? Who do I call when I have a question about the way my state or federal government is doing something? If I have to fill out a new form or if we're in a pandemic and I have to go get PPP funds, how can I be competitive in doing that? If Operation Chokehold comes in and cuts off my fucking bank account, how do we as an organization get our message up to somebody who can listen to common sense and say we're not drug dealers and in, in, in selling illegal automatic weapons. How do we as an organization get the, the, the humongous fucking bureaucracy in, in DC or at the state level to listen to us and to understand that we're just out here trying to make a living. And the problem is, is you have all these little fiefdoms and protectorates and it's like the fucking Taliban. It's like you got this warlord and this warlord and this warlord and every honest you know, rug selling fucking, you know, Allah praying dude is sitting there in the middle of the uh, of the whole thing just getting fucked. And that's the way it's been for the ever since I've been in the business for 10 years. And and even the f- four years before that as a retailer, whether it was Joe at, at the RTDA or whether it was, um, you know, the, P- the PCA or the CRA, we have a very good model here at our company. We have the money to help do the things that help our retailers and help us. 
we're, we are team players. We want to participate in an organization that functions. But I don't give a shit what some retailer in, in Virginia who, who hobnobs with law, lawyers and lobbyists cares about. I, I want to know what the retailer in Oklahoma City needs, what, what the retailer in, in, in Miami needs. What, you know, those people who are my customers and those companies that are like my company. I want this those companies to succeed. Of How About That Cigar is brought to you by Drew Estate. <laughs> <laughs> the division of Swisher International. I don't give a shit what. Hey, look, whatever's good for me is going to be good for Drew Estate. I don't give two fucks about what John Drew had. It, it, you know, I love John. He helped me get started. I don't give a shit about protecting anything John Drew has going. But what is good for John Drew in a lot of ways is good for me. And what's good for Abe is good for the small retailer in Oklahoma. And we just got to figure this out and, and unfuck ourselves. Well, but the answer of laying everybody in Washington, D.C. off and just waiting until the next trade show comes back or having to file bankruptcy so they don't have to give the deposits back, that is not the answer. I, and I, I agree with you. And I want to jump in here because you, you guys, kudos for segueing literally into the next question that I had written and that it ties into exactly what you guys have just been talking about. And it's sort of the, you know, you it's could about use the Taliban. No. Yes, definitely. <laughs> But you I've know, been the, watching Homeland. Sorry, <laughs> the tectonic plates or the musical chairs between all of the different advocacy organizations, if you want to call it, what use whatever term you want to, all the all the acronym organizations: PCA, TAA, CRA, CAA, blah 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 blah. Name any acronym you want to. All of those organizations, you know, there there's there. It seems to me, at least, and you guys know a lot more about it than I do. That's why I want to get your thoughts on it. Is there are so many different plates that connect in some spots and don't see each other at all in other spots? What, where are the benefits of having all those different organizations? And would it be more beneficial to to coalesce things more and for simplicity or or whatever? What do you guys think about that? I yield my time to John. I, I, I think I need to do what Charlie didn't get a drink. I yield my time to Charlie. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think that it's important. I, I think that, you know, there should be a, a I, I think it's important for, for the different subsets to have their say. I, I think that what Skip and, and others would find out is that much like what happened with the CAA, which is an organization that is a cigar association of America. And, and it was comprised of, and still is to some degree of both the machine made players as well as the premium players. And what happened was, is that, you know, at a certain point it became clear that the, the money talked and the money is with the machine made stuff. And so I think in the same aspect, I think that it would make sense to have a retailers organization, one that wasn't in charge of the trade show that could represent brick and mortar retailers, particularly because they are, if you had to list out all of the industries within the, the, the subset of industries within the cigar industry, the, the endangered species is the brick and mortar cigar retailer. Online cigar retailers growing, you know, the, the people like skip at the, you know, the million cigars per year, you know, FTA regulation, notwithstanding, you know, those people are gaining ground and, and taking market share away from the biggest players. The biggest players are still, I would imagine having great years and still quite profitable and, and there's always the opportunity for somebody like Skip to become, you know, a, a Davidoff or, or Drew State. Um, and so I, I think that it's... to make more cigars. 
Yeah, you'd have to make. A I lot don't want to make more cigars. I just want to live. You go. Just let there me you live. Go. But that. <laughs> You know that mobility exists. the The one area where you know every day that goes by, coronavirus or not, where a certain market share is being taken away, it, it's with the the brick and mortar retailers. And so, I, I think it would be helpful for them to have their advocacy and to have people that are specifically looking out for them. I think the issue is is that it's intertangled with the the industry as a whole. I mean, the organization decided they were going to call themselves the Premium Cigar Association. And depending on the day of the week and what the topic is, they'll say we represent the entire cigar industry. And then other times it's, well, we only represent the brick and mortar retailers. Well, also machine-made cigars made in Tampa. Yes. Well, by antique (laughs) machines. By antique machines, right. But, you know, I I, I don't think it would be good. And I, I think for the same reasons why, you know, I have to keep yielding my time to Abe. I, I think that in some of these issues, having everyone in the room all at once is not going to be great. Um, it's impossible. It's impossible. But I, I think the the biggest change I continue to advocate what, for and the easiest one to make is if the PCA, which I think everyone would agree is the most important of the organizations that exist, if they were to at least be open about their thinking, about what they were considering doing, about what their budget was, about what their plans for the future were on a regular basis, then, you know, I think the industry would be collectively in a much better spot. Uh, The dynamics of how does the PCA exist without a trade show and, and how do you, you know, transform the CRA into an organization that Skip would be willing to give money to, those are all much, much bigger issues. But just being open about here's what the largest organization is thinking when it comes to this issue seems like a massive step in the right direction. Cause at this point it's like, Oh, that's what the PCA said on Tuesday. Let's call the PCA up and say, if that's see if that's what they actually are going to stand by publicly. And then it's like, Oh, well my emails don't well, get but, answered. But it used to be real simple. It used to be real simple, which is the internet didn't exist. If, if Greenville, Colorado wanted to pass a law that, prevented people from smoking in you know any public place we came in as an organization and supported the local retailer who came in and said look i sell a legal product which is tobacco i don't let people in my business who are under 18 part of my business is people grabbing a cigar sitting in a chair and watching fox news so can you carve out an exemption for people who have a tobacco perm retail tobacco permit that have a place where they have to sample and smoke on premises. And everyone agreed with that concept. No one was opposed to it. Um, and we were generally pretty successful when whoever appealed to, to our resources to come in and argue that needed help. And it, it isn't really any more complicated than that. The, you know, here's the thing. We have 50,000, 300,000, half a million, however you want to calculate the number of people who buy premium cigars and enjoy premium cigars. And then there are people who don't even smoke cigars, who understand the concept of cigars are different than other things, and and there are people who smoke them, and they want to have businesses where they do that. I I don't smoke marijuana. I've never smoked marijuana. If you want to smoke marijuana and you want to have marijuana, I don't give a shit. Uh, you, You could count me as an advocate to come in, if you ask me for help, to help you uh, tell the government that we we as a people do not want you regulating marijuana and we do not want the drug war and we do not want you telling people who can legally sell marijuana how they should run their businesses. Skip, you have 30 seconds to figure out how to incorporate the Taliban. 
<laughs> so yes. Yeah, so, so the thing is, is like I don't even sell to Abe, but but if Abe called me and said, "Hey, you know, I I need some help. I don't know why Abe would ever do that. But if Abe ever said that, I would absolutely do anything I could possibly do. Hey, do you want me to send the email to the nine thousand people I have to to send a letter to the Miami or the the whatever Palm, whatever fucking bougie neighborhood uh, Abe lives in and works in." If you want me to do that, I'll absolutely do that for you, Abe, because you're part of my community. And, well, and this is this is a great point, Skip. Because look, this is well, the problem. Is like, look, we had a problem down here in South Florida. Me and Ryan and Jeff, you know, technically competitors, all got together and worked. The problem that we have is, is that, like Charlie said, there's a lot of subsets, right? Different parts of the industry, who what's important to them is different, right? We forget about subsets. I mean, I could tell you just on the board alone of the PCA, there was many times where the board wasn't even aligned in what was good for the PCA and the retailers, right? I, like when, like I, when they told the Maryland retailers, "Hey, Maryland, you should charge, charge taxes at the retailers." Well, I wasn't, I wasn't on the board when that happened. But I tell you what, right. like my first, my first board meeting, right? I'm sitting in a room with Dave Garofalo and Jeff's there, and they're talking about endorsing the Jenkins Act back then, right? Which would regulate interstate sales of tobacco. That one, and, yeah. All right. So I'm sitting on a board. I'm the new guy, right? So I'm, I'm trying to sit back <laughs> and watch how this all plays out. And I'm looking at Jenna and I'm like, are they really talking about like lobbying for regulation? Is this a reality here? And, you know, after, and then I finally mustered up and I, I, I said to the board, I said, do you even know? What percentage of your membership sells tobacco? Because I'm not even sure if I had a website back then, or maybe I just started having a website back then. But I had been shipping out cigars because we're very seasonal here in Florida. So customers would come down, we get their email. So we we're running to the post office mailing packages long before I was doing it on the internet. And I'm like, do you even know what percentage of the membership? Then how can you say you're representing the membership when they're so stuck in their mind? about what the membership was. So even just in the PCA, they're, they're not even aligned all the time. So the problem is that- But if that board, if that, that board was, could, be, could be formed, Abe, if that board could be formed and, and, and changed and if people had a real voice in their organization, then, then at least you could have a say-so in those. If, if you had a real conference call where everybody said, hey, we're considering the Jenkins Act and, and what do you guys think about it? It's possible 70% of the dumbass retailers across the country would say, yeah, eliminate my competitor. But if you had well, consumers this, and media and manufacturers well, say, that's a stupid what, fucking idea. Well, this is what I'm saying. I don't think the board really shouldn't be made up of retailers or maybe retailers who are still in business because they always will end up wanting to stuff things where they think it's in their but, advantage, which is not the advantage but, for the whole. But, but the other groups, here's the problem. When you have a law or regulation, the one faction, it's not good enough to say, hey, this doesn't affect us, or, you know, they want to shut down the other thing, right? That, that's what we're fighting for. It's not like let the premium cigar side do their thing. We're fighting big tobacco who wants to fight the premium. So I don't know how that ever works. I don't know how it ever combines because it's just insane. The and, way it and then. It, then the day the money wins. But the way it doesn't work is five people in a room making a decision for the entire industry. 
Amen. That, that, that's the one scenario. Like I'd rather have, you know, the PCA send out a, an email or a survey and whatever retailers respond. And even if it's 70% of the retailers that skip called dumbasses, or I guess he called a hundred percent of those 70% dumbasses. But even if it's 70% <laughs> of them vote for the Jenkins act, that's better than five people in a room making a decision and not letting anyone else, you know, have a say in it and then representing it as if that's everyone's opinion. Agreed. Well, the the unreality of that is is that if you send, I mean, you know, if you I've sent boards where you send emails out for votes and stuff like that. If you send out an email or a correspondence to the whole organization, you'd probably have the twelve guys who mailed in their ballots and responses. <laughs> but that's it's still better than the five people in the room. True, right? True. But but I've always functioned under this premise as a company. <clears throat> I was a cigar smoker. I didn't smoke cigars, and then I did. And then I really smoked a lot of cigars. And I always think back to every decision I make as a company, as a manufacturer, at the factory. Every decision I make is how would myself view this as a consumer of this product? And and, and, we, and that has to guide us because at the end of the day, it, without consumers, we don't exist. And – I think you know we've had this whole long ass conversation, and the consumer voice is really not a part of it. I mean, most consumers don't give a shit about any of this. All most consumers care about is can I buy my cigar at a fair price without a bunch of fucking taxes that that doesn't have a bunch of bullshit in it that I don't know is in there, and and I can I get it when I want it, and can I just buy it and go smoke it with my friends and not give a shit about any of these politics or the boards, or the organizations, or the trade shows. I don't go to the fucking trade show. I'm a consumer. I don't go to the trade show. I like reading the articles on Half Wheel. I like reading the articles on whatever. I don't give a shit about the reviewers. Developing I don't give a <laughs> Developing palettes. <laughs> right. And how but, about that? Oh, I'll accept whatever. Whatever's fine. I can tell you, you, know, you say what you want to say about David Garofalo, and, and that's a good example of this, is David Garofalo is one of the most, he comes across as one of the nicest guys you've ever met. But David Garofalo is a fucking shrewd, hard, grudge-holding, hardcore business guy. But let me tell you what David Garofalo thinks about every time he does anything is he thinks about the guy that walks into his door and buys cigars. And if we did that, we would be in a much better position Skip, I in have everything a, we do. A or B question before we move on to the next official question. Is <laughs> okay. the PCA a more or less dysfunctional organization than the Nicaraguan Tobacco Association that was completely dysfunctional circa five years ago. <laughs> the Nicaraguan Cigar Organization is oh, more very or functional, more functional. And the reason right. why is because... <laughs> no, no, they, I didn't want to know the reason why. I'll tell you we why. We have another question, I'm sure. No, I didn't want to know. I just wanted to I'll know if it was more why. or less dysfunctional. Because oh. I don't have a lot of say-so in anything they fucking do. I, very little in what they do. I They ask me for cigars, I give them cigars. They ask me for money, I give them money because I'm promoting Nicaraguan cigar manufacturing within the country and outside the country. But here's the thing. Once they agree on something, they talk amongst themselves. The five or six guys have most to say. But at the end of the day, I know everything that they do is beneficial to us and as a as a Nicaraguan manufacturer. And so I play along. They've never asked my opinion on anything. I've called and bitched to Juan Martinez. Why. 
a few times. But I, I go to Esteban, who's one of the most humble. It's probably because you can't speak Spanish. Right. That's probably but here's the thing. When the government tries to fuck us in some way, the Nicar- Nicaraguan chamber has a say-so. They're at the table, and they legitimately want to do what's best for all of us. And, and I can't say that about the CRA, and I can't say that about the PCA. All right. Next question. <laughs> um, this was actually uh, sort of a media-related question, uh, specifically for John and Charlie. Um, and that is, you know, with all everything that's been going on with uh, coronavirus, with quarantine, um, so many things have changed, obviously. But if you look at past years, there was such a such a a, a period of of the year where press releases were coming out every thirty seconds from companies. We got this new product, that new product. This is coming out. That's coming out. We're going to announce it at the trade show. We're going to, you know, be releasing it at the trade show. Blah 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 blah. And that's great. I have no problem with all that. If companies want to proceed that way, but Coop loves them. Coop loves press you, releases. Coop loves press releases. <laughs> but have you guys, Charlie and John, seen a specific change in that this year? Um, cause I, I have seen a change in it this year, but it's, it's different than what I expected as far as, you know, the way that companies are, uh, getting the word out about new products. Um, and Charlie, you've been, you've been at this a really long time and has, have things been drastically different that you've seen or, or only in a minor way? And if so, how, um, I mean, they've been drastically different, but I don't know if they've been drastically different in the context of everything else that's going on in the world. I think that the the likely answer to why are they different is just because companies don't have as many new products. Products that they intended on releasing or debuting at the trade show aren't ready, or they've decided that they're going to delay them because they want to focus on their core competency, and and so they're not spending the time and the effort on new items. Um, uh, you know, certainly a company like Drew Estate who wasn't intending on going to the trade show had all their ducks in a row. And I don't know, maybe there was other products that Drew Estate planned on launching this year that they shelved because of coronavirus. But, you know, I, I think that the one logical difference is that the the trade show serves as a deadline for if you're going to debut new products at the trade show. So there was a date in which if you were going to do it, you were going to have to have at least samples or images or pricing or something ready to go by July 11th. And once the trade show got canceled, that no longer was relevant. And so, you know, a whole bunch of these companies that you take like Prometheus, for example, who normally has this very glossy over the top catalog to give to their retail customers, at the trade show, and they'll share that with media uh, right before the show. Like usually the day before the show opens, you'll get an email from Prometheus. Here's all our new products. July 11th was no was just a, a Friday. It wasn't or Saturday. It wasn't a, a any sort of important date. So Prometheus, I'm sure at some point we'll get a catalog from them, but probably going to be later in the year. And and I don't know. I mean, I, I got an email example from Villiger today that was like, "Hey, we announced our TA release back in March. There were a whole bunch of delays. We're finally shipping it tomorrow." It's very understandable and logical. And you know, I would imagine if there was delays on that product, then whatever Villiger had planned for the rest of the year, probably also got delayed. Yeah. John, what do you think about 
communications from cigar companies over the last uh, four months. Yeah, I think Charlie hit it on the head. And I mean, Coop, just to give a little bit of love to Coop, Coop did do an article on this. And, you know, there was a, a very measurable drop in the amount of articles and, and uh, releases that have been going out pre, pre-show. And Charlie's absolutely right. I think, you know, getting on some of the positive things about the PCA, it really truly is a drop-dead date. And I, I do think that even the Big Four, who had no plans on participating in the, in the PCA show this year, they still would have put out, Articles and news releases to all the media companies, certainly half wheel, illustrating that they had new products because they knew they were going to have to compete with the releases and, and articles that other companies who plan to attend the PCA were going to put out. And I think that is beneficial. I think having that hard date that everyone's used to of the PCA coming in the summer every year, or late fall or whatever the date is decided, that becomes a drop dead date that everyone must get their announcements out because that is you know, truly, that is one of the big benefits of the show. It is, it is a trade show, and you must release your product information, regardless of whether it's going to ship in November or whether it's actually going to ship shortly after the show, probably November. But it still serves as a great anchor point for the year that all that information comes out. And I think that is beneficial to the industry. I think it's, I don't know how much, you know, retailers probably don't pay a lot of attention to that at all, but it is good to have that information hard-coded at a particular time of the year so that it's consistent. Now, you know, that information is probably going to come out over the course of the next six months, and and frankly, a lot of that's probably going to be lost in a lot of the other news cycles. And, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier, that's probably going to harm a lot of the smaller companies because they're going to feel like their press release is not maybe getting the same amount of love that they would normally expect this time of the year because it came out in September, because it came out in October and you know, maybe there's something more exciting at that time. I don't know. Well, I, 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 I got to somewhat... tell you, I got to tell you're you, not a media you, member, but as a manufacturer, you're not a media member. There's, there's a product development cycle <laughs> that got disrupted by COVID. And even if the trade show had gone on as normal, the, the label makers, the box makers, the, all of those aspects of bringing a product from the, the eight marketing people who develop it to actually bringing it to, to a point where you could present it as a new product. That was all disrupted. So even if the, the trade show had happened in July, that those things would have been delayed till August or September anyway. But I'll play a trump card on top of that. Like It's illogical if the trade show isn't in existence and none of that other shit took place. It makes no sense for you to be announcing your products at the same time that 20-year competitors are also announcing. 100%. Just right. like why Abe's not going to do his event the same weekend that Cigar Aficionado is trying to do Big Smoke Miami. Like, there's just no reason for it. And, and I think that, you know, going back two hours, um, I think that one of the other parts of the trade show that I'm sure Skip could talk for hours about that's kind of illogical is, like, if you're going you know, to I offer... Feel attacked. A, I feel attacked. If you're going to offer a big discount, why do it the same week that all of your competitors are also offering their best discount? And I, I think to... They I yield my time to Abe. Sorry. No, I yield no, it. Go. They don't. They, that, that's, that's been part of the problem with the trade show is for the last decade, they all start fighting and start selling you stuff before you even get on the plane, which defeats the purpose of me having to go. Yeah. You know, I mean, and it's a model. And as much as the, this goes back to when I sat on the board, right? How can we stop this from happening? And they just can't. So the, the manufacturers have, have, have basically canalized the whole purpose of the show because 
these deals are available to us four to six weeks before the show. Yeah, and but the, the whole the whole idea of a discount. There we is, go. That's the conversation I was hoping for. The whole idea of a discount ha- has been from a manufacturer or wholesaler perspective is a lever you pull to to lower your inventories or to generate spikes of revenue when, when you have cost spikes or when you have excess inventory. And what's really happened in our industry is discounting has become mainstream part of the model where um, you have companies like, I won't even say names, but you have companies that offer the buy eight, get two free, buy whatever all year long. Right. So like, you know, I, for us, discounting is about it. Look, you make plenty of margin, uh, Abe, but there, there are fixed and increasing costs that are happening on the manufacturing side every single day. And, and really at the end of the day, what happens is the cycle has in our industry has become um, pr- overpriced something at MSRP at $15, discounted at the wholesale level, get it, get the inventory over to the, the menu, to the retailers, and then the retailers will excess discount to get it out to the consumers so that it ends up being where it should have been in the, in the first place. So, um, you know, we use discounting really uh, – we, we never have excess inventory. So we use discounting really as a lever to, to, to accelerate sales within a particular – our brand within a particular retailer or to, to move, um, to move for, for a cash need, right? So um, discounting has become such a core part of what our model as an industry is that having it kind of set to a date of a trade show – like you said, is not it's not even realistic in the way that our business works now anyway. We, but I mean, we, we essentially work on a year round discounting model. Yeah, I mean, Abe said this, Charlie said this, that, you know, and just to reiterate and hammer this point home, the trade show can't just be about discounting products like that model has long since shipped and, and sailed off into the into the sunset. The trade show has to offer something substantive for people, both manufacturers and retailers to want to attend that it goes beyond discounting products. And that's, I mean, that's really the crux of the issue is that obviously they haven't been able to do that. And that's, that's the heart of the issue is you need to be able to get something of value that goes beyond the discounts. Over, over a 10 year old conversation. That, right. That conversation. I mean, the, the big mail order guys are doing so much volume right now. They don't even have the leverage to, to pressure guys for, I mean, if you take the, the four-week pause of manufacturing and you throw that against lower inventories at the wholesale level and you throw that against this, the extremely high demand at the big guys level, discounting right now is not even uh, a focus unless it's completely built into your MSRP. Well, and for wrapping up to the core audience of how about that cigar, you should know the one person <laughs> that gets fucked in this equation is the consumer. The consumer That's exactly fucked. right. That's exactly right, and and that's why we don't discount because we're here for the consumer. I love the retailer; they're great partners. I want them to make money just like we make money. But at the end of the day, we want to make good cigars and sell them at a fair price. And I, I think that that's a, a point. Like, you know, the the brick and mortar retailers need all the help they can get, I suppose. But you know, the the cigar industry is gonna once it figures out what it's gonna do with the PCA and the trade show, which are two separate conversations. The next moment of reckoning, and it was part of the big four's complaint, was 
you know, this business model that's been created is, is not one that's sustainable. And the consumers, particularly at the brick and mortar level, if you're buying from the big catalogs, you have a shot at getting a discount that's not an event-based discount. But otherwise, I can't think of a time in which I've walked into a store and seen, you know, a 20% off sticker on a box of cigars that wasn't a clearance table. You know, and I know these people aren't paying full price for cigars. Yeah. Um, but, you know. That's a, a different I mean, the cigars, the cigars, this is basic it. capitalism. The cigars that people want are in short supply to the retailer, and therefore the retailer, unless they're a complete dumbass, does not discount it to the people who come in looking for it. The only thing that's discounted is the stuff that's easily made in excess so that the retailers have excess inventories so that the consumers can get it at a cheap price. Our next question is brought to you by Cigars International. (laughs) And one other big thing that's come up in the last four or five months is there have got to be, got to be 50, 70, 100 new cigar, not new cigar, but 100 cigar companies that have a new podcast or YouTube show or Facebook live show or Instagram live. And all these companies that, that are, you know, they, because of COVID, and, and it's not just cigar companies, honestly, it's companies of, of all different types of products, you know, that are that are realizing, hey, we, you know, as long as we're in the middle of this craziness, we have an opportunity or, or now really the only way we can reach a lot of our customers is by getting out there and, and creating sort of a media avenue to reach our customers. And there's a lot of cigar companies that are putting on their own shows and don't get me wrong i think it's fine if you know them doing that and some do a great job with it some not so much but you know there's there's just a lot of that going on and um i i assume you guys have seen a lot of this happening on facebook and things like that what are your thoughts about that you're, you're gonna you're gonna see that slow down I'm just I, agree. I agree yeah it's too much work number one I, you could get one can't sell to come on Tim, any of those abe is an expert on this topic but Abe, am I wrong? You can get Juan Cancel to come on any of those. Juan Cancel is an anomaly, all right? But, but, I mean, look, here's reality. Like, I've dedicated now, I think, almost 10 years to – I don't consider myself media, like Charlie or, or John. My, my show is more entertainment, right? We're not really – I wouldn't consider myself any kind of reporting or news media. So we, we just like to entertain – and, and talk and reenact what happens in a cigar lounge in front of an audience. So it was a lot of what happened happened because people had nothing to do. People were going in the office. You know, I mean, we even see, start seeing the PCA start doing videos, right? But it's already dying down. Like, you know, I'm not seeing Rafael Nodal every week doing a show. And, you know, people yeah. who never did stop popping up. But on another note, there's tons of, you know, I remember what, I remember when we started our show, I think I only knew of one or maybe two other shows. Now there's like, I mean, a plethora, everybody's making shows, which is a good thing. But as far as from the industry, as life kind of gets back to normal and business, I mean, look, we had a whereby chat, right? And, you know, I was in it every night. And, and like I can barely find time to get in anymore. My 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 world's getting back to a normal reality. So um, I think you'll see a lot less of it from the industry people. 
you know, and, and the people who are kind of doing it before COVID will continue to do it. Um, but there's a huge surge in just normal consumers, everyday people starting their own podcasts and posts, which I've always kind of been an advocate for, right? I mean, and for, for me, like the way Skip says, right, anything that propels or, or helps spread what I like to call the cigar lifestyle is always going to be a positive benefit to everybody as a whole. So that, yeah. that, that's that's always a good thing. And that's why I've always been very supportive of other bloggers, other podcasts, other shows. It's all it's all a net total sum benefit at the end of the day, if, if you want to look at the big picture of things. But yeah. the things that you were talking about, strictly from the manufacturer side and the new side, I, I think you're already starting to see it decline and slip away. And, and I think that's going to end up going back to a normal pre-COVID level at some point. Yeah. It hasn't already. I mean, it's um, a lot of it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work, yeah. And and I I think that once and, and it's a lot of work for during during the time of that we're in right now, it's it's work that I think some companies are gonna see returns on that work. They're gonna see maybe, you know, some new consumers get hooked into their products and things like that. But when things go back to um, you know, your what we what we always knew before, it's the return on investment for that work, I think it's going to be less and less. So, so we're going to see a lot of companies just not do that as often. Hey man, I'm just here for the free samples. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, if I had to estimate, I probably spend, and I, Abe, I don't know what this number is for you. I know Charlie's above this now. I probably spend, and this is a conservative estimate as a guy who's running four companies in multiple countries. I probably spend six to eight hours a day answering questions, engaging with consumers on social media, um, doing things like this. Um, I, I don't have time to produce my own podcast. I mean, maybe if I convince Danny to do it and I'm paying him a hundred grand a year or whatever, and I, I, there's no ROI for me and Danny's, you know, I, I'll have him go on your show. There's no ROI for me to have Danny producing our own podcast. But I mean, if you're size of Drew Estate, it's it's a small investment, right? You can yeah. hire a full time employee to do just that exactly. all day long, and, and it's probably beneficial. I mean, at the end of the day, you're reaching the same fifty, a hundred people, and for a company a big size that can afford to do it, I don't know if there's a big ROI in doing it. But- I disagree. I think there's one shiny example where it's paid off, and that's with Bovida. Um, you know, Bovida yeah. obviously sells in two industries, so that's helpful. But that's a company that made the investment. You know, has specific people that not just Rob, they have production people as well that that do other things, but are also there to be, you know, the people so that Rob can be on shows and not spend all of his time in Final Cut. But I mean, that's ultimately, you know, I would say a company like Davidoff with Klaus Peter, that's an interesting one of like, do they because they have Klaus Peter as an ambassador in, in a world of travel in 2020? Do they, you know, how much ambassadoring does Klaus Peter able to do outside of his home? You know, that's something where maybe you see somebody make an investment. But if you're just going to have even your estate, if you're just going to take employees that have other tasks to do, if they have to spend two hours on a podcast every week, it's going to take a couple years before you're reaching this outside of that same 50 to 100 people that Skip's referring to. Um, and Bovida made the investment. I imagine they knew it was going to take a little while. And, and now Rob's a you know, bona fide cigar celebrity for the 
72 yeah. people that care about the it. Problem, the problem with being a cigar celebrity is everybody wants to be one until they are one, and then they realize the demand it takes to to do that, right? I mean, like... Skip um, so hard. These are, these, are skip, <laughs> these are Skip Martin problems. I don't know Skip Martin problems. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, do you think Abe have be- has better things that he could do with his life at this point in his life and spend three hours every day, you know, with Paul? <laughs> It's like, you know, I'm sure there are days, I'm sure some days he gets up excited to do it. I'm sure there's some days like, I can't believe I'm going to talk about the same bullshit again. Yeah, but that's that's why you hire somebody to do it. That's why you find a Rob or you find a Klaus Peter. I mean, it's it's not worth it. Raphael, no doubt, loved the fact that he was in the spotlight until he realized it was actually extra work. And then, you know. (laughs) Or he had other shit to do. Right, yeah. exactly. The, the the content that you can provide is dependent on the fact that you actually do other shit, right? Yes. Here's what it comes down to. So first off, I'm, you know, I, I am my show, right? You, you take me out of my show, I don't think KMA lasts because that's kind of what we built the show around originally, right? Um, but I enjoy doing it. I, I, I don't, I, I mean... I really, really do, and I even enjoy it more sometimes when I have a guest I don't know because I don't know shit, so I'm asking questions like anybody in my audience watching the show. So I enjoy it, and when it gets to the point that I don't enjoy it, I'm going to probably stop doing it. Yeah. You know, I mean, for me, it's not two hours of work. It's two hours where I'm not worried about what I do every day for a living, kind of actually get to do what I enjoyed in my early years of retail, sit around with a bunch of guys and bullshit for a few hours like you know like we're doing now you know um so i think there's a different part of it right so these guys who are doing it trying to do it as a job like Raphael, that stuff wears thin on you fast right i mean it's just like skip says i mean it just becomes like a job so um that's why i said i think you're gonna see it level off eventually where these guys are just gonna because you know it, you know KMA is not a profitable venture, right? It really just started out as fun and just became what it became. And, you know, it's not a money-making thing. Does it get me out there a little more? Did people learn about me and my company a little more from doing it? Sure, there's probably some ancillary benefits that we received from it. It's just something we enjoy doing. You know, early on in the days when we did it, I didn't even pay my co-hosts. You know, we weren't making any money. It was volunteer work. My guys were happy to get on, on the mic and and be on a radio show in a real studio and talk about cigars and cigar lifestyle. You know, you, yeah. you know, now they, now they get paid. And unfortunately, you know, we can't afford a better producer than Paul. That's all we got. But, <laughs> well, I'm still looking forward to your new studio. And, well, and you know what, Skip? I mean, I don't know if I said this publicly yet or not. Um, not sure if we're doing it anymore. That's another COVID, you know, realization. I mean, we, 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 you know, our, our, our need for a warehouse got forwarded and I was looking at warehouse space and we were going to build the studio in there because I, I was, where to build the studio was always a little bit problematic. So we were going to do it on the second floor of one of my retail locations, but honestly, in our long-term scheme, it might be the one location we don't keep because as pre-COVID, we're converting all our older stores to these full cigar bar lounges. And in that that one where it is, we just would never be able to do it. It's out in the middle of nowhere. It's not zoned for it. And we would have to move so far, it'd be like just creating a whole new store. So I didn't want to invest in putting the studio on the second floor of that, and that's not our retail shop. So then when we said, well, we're going to move into a warehouse, we just build it in there. And I'm looking at this, and I'm looking at the square footage, and I'm looking at what's going on. 
and I'm saying I'm going to tie up this floor space and build this out, which was going to cost you know substantial money. It, it, it came to me as a very egotistical move more than a practical move because during COVID, our, all our views have gone up. Our viewership's gone up. Um, they're still going up. I mean, we get roughly three to 4,000 views every weekly show. And does doing the studio going to legitimize it? I mean, we could probably invest in a little more equipment. I mean, I've never heard of this stream yard. And Matt, I may contact you afterwards because <laughs> I kind of – I kind of already texted our IT guys. I kind of like this setup, you know, but we can invest a little bit more in the current technology. And I don't think that, and by doing the Zoom and not having a studio, because having a studio and not having guests in there is kind of anticlimactic, right? Sad. So, Sad. Ha- yeah, having <laughs> Zoom opens us up more to be able to get guys like Skip Martin or guys who aren't going to be in town or fly around. So, I, I'm not sure if we're going to do this video. I mean, it's 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 practically it's just not looking like it's going to make sense for us. Yeah. Well, it really it really jumped the shark when the granddaddy cigar weasel Dave, cigar Dave the general, when he when he's going straight to to new media instead of being a radio personality. Well, I think Dave. <laughs> Dave listen, look, Dave, Dave. Dave was kind of my my inspiration to kind of how I got started this. So. Um, I mean, he was a pioneer in his time. When we had just started, he'd already yeah. been doing it 15 years. Well, but- and I, I think Dave also saw the writing on the wall. I think a lot of terrestrial radio shows are starting to see the writing yeah. on the wall, that return on investment is not there spending all that money to produce a show and broadcast on terrestrial radio when you can get more reach on on, on a podcast or, or, or YouTube or Facebook for a third the money. Yeah, Dave saw. Dave didn't see the writing on the wall that was there about eight years ago. You know, right. Dave's, <laughs> Dave, Dave's Dave's website used to list all his affiliates. Then that page magically disappeared, and you know, stations started slowly and series stopped, and so it, it was long in the making. We, we Man, without a, without that, a trade show to weasel at, what? Why do it? <laughs> right? Oh well, yeah, Dave, you're right. That Dave didn't see the writing on the wall. Dave waited until the wall crumbled on top of his head and went, "Oh shit! I, I should probably do something about this." Like an and, East and German, guys, <laughs> guys like you and Coop and and Dojo and have have made shows that are getting huge followings and huge views. And and he's just constantly dwindling. And we, look, when I first started, my whole thing was syndication. So every time we got in a new city, Tampa, Atlanta, New York. I got all excited, and then I saw the writing on the wall. This radio stuff. Just no, nobody's listening to our show on Facebook Live. When we started doing Facebook Live, because we started with Periscope first. I don't know if you know Periscope. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know if that exists anymore. But we used to it have. Not. We used to. We used to mount the iPad with the one bubble lens. You know. Yeah. When Facebook Live started. That was the beginning of the end of us realizing we didn't need terrestrial radio. We just need a place to broadcast from. So that was always in the back of our minds to get our own studio and whatever. But now that we kind of were forced to do the Zoom thing and whatnot, I, I, I don't even know if we're going to build a studio. I just don't think we need it. I think we can we can get some backdrops, get some better cameras, maybe some better technology, and make a decent quality show. I mean, this, this looks like a great show here. And, and just continue doing what we're doing and make sure that the content is enjoyable and entertaining. Because at the end of the day, that's what's going to keep them coming back. Not that I got cool lit up stuff behind me and a digital screen. So You don't have a chroma key like John. Right? 
<laughs> John's got it blows the away in the wind. Yeah, yeah. make sure you tape down your background. Yeah, but I mean, the heart of the question is, you know, should sh- I think should manufacturers should brand owners be pursuing that? And oh, yeah, they should question. have been pursuing this for like five years. This, you know, it took it took a massive pandemic to recognize that. Hey, it turns out if there's this massive disruption in our industry, we're going to be left holding the bag and we have no marketing strategy and no strategy whatsoever to reach our consumers or reach our retailers. And, you know, the rest of us in media are like, hey, you know, by the way, some of us have been doing this for a decade. Uh, It does have value. And I think, you know, this this transition in this industry has taken a very long time. Yeah, a lot of companies are almost certainly going to drop off their efforts because it does take a lot of work and it does take consistency. But hopefully some of them stick to it because, uh, you know, I think there's there's a lot of value in that. And like I said, in a disruption like this, it shows that you've got a, a major gap in your marketing. Yeah. Well, I think it's a big um, part of what we were talking about before where it's it's about that social fabric, right? So I probably listen to more of these things than most human beings. I listen to <laughs> Abe's every week, Dave's every I mean, I probably listen to 40 hours a week of content like this and – I think it's really just about staying connected with the the social. If you if I can't walk into one of Abe's great stores and order a drink and sit down and you know talk to him for three hours, then at least I can kind of hear Abe's way of thinking. You know, once a week, and for me that that has value because I stay connected to the to the industry, right? Yeah. Well, I want to. Um, we're we're hitting the three hour mark, and I want to get into our last segments here just to. Uh, to wrap things up. Um, so we're going to move into this week's smokabulary word. And as always, smokabulary is brought to you by AJ Fernandez. Born and raised in Cuba, AJ Fernandez now produces unparalleled premium cigars in Esteli, Nicaragua. The day-to-day operations at Tabacalera AJ Fernandez are managed under the watchful eye of Mr. Fernandez himself in order to ensure superior quality. The AJ Fernandez portfolio of premium cigars provides blend strength and flavor profiles to match the preferences of any premium cigar consumer, whether it's new world, Dias de Gloria, San Latano, Enclave, or Bayas Artes, you are sure to be satisfied with a premium cigar from A.J. Fernandez. So, this week's smokabulary word, I'm keeping it simple because I knew this was going to be a long show. So, this week's smokabulary word is Kappa. And Kappa just means wrapper. It's the wrapper on your cigar. So when you hear somebody say Kappa, because there are some cigar guys out there, even even super gringo cigar guys who still say Kappa <laughs> instead of rapper, which, you know, hey, do you do you. But, you know, that it, when you hear somebody say Kappa, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the wrapper leaf on the cigar. And that is this week's vocabulary word brought to you by A.J. Fernandez. Is it like the fraternity? It is like the fraternity. Kappa, Kappa, Kappa. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now it is time for. Numero de los Muertos. All right, guys. Numero de los Muertos is brought to you by Oveja Negra. They bring you premium smoking experiences forged from tobacco, time, and talent. Comprised of Black Label Trading Company, Black Work Studio, Dissonant, and Emilio. Oveja Negra brands provide smokers uncompromising blends renowned for their flavor and lasting impression. Oveja Negra, where art and tobacco collide. Join the flock. Visit ovejanegra.com to learn more. All right, guys. So if you haven't been on the show before, you haven't seen it, um, I give a number. And it's up to our guests, Matt, and the viewers 
to try and guess how these people died. This week's number is 100 per year in the U.S. 100 per year in the U.S. All right. So we all get to guess. We get to throw like play like 20 questions. Uh, viewers, you also put, put your guesses in the comments. Um, 100 people per year die from this in the U.S. And I'll give the first hint. We get to ask questions or no? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, sir. 20 questions. Oh, okay. So, um, the first hint is this is an OSHA number. OSHA. So on the job, for- on the job, auto asphyxiation. <laughs> auto auto erotic asphyxiation. <laughs> I'm I'm deeply concerned that that was the first fucking thing that came to your mind. I caught Danny. I caught Danny in the storeroom. That's all. I'm going to leave it there. Is it? Oh. Would it Hold on. We didn't it, get a yes or no there. Yeah. Uh, that is a no on that one. <laughs> oh. So would that be higher or lower though? That's the the real question. <laughs> is it have? Is it, is it involved construction sites? It does not. Not construction. That's a is really it good is it professionally related to a profession, a specific profession? It is. Forklift accident? No, sir. That'd would be way would too this profession white collar or blue collar? Uh, definitely blue collar. Is it sports? No. Uh, also, oh, guys, oh, I, I am watching comments. And uh, it is it is not anything that anybody. It is it is not murder hornets. It is not murder hornets. <laughs> it is not nuclear radiation or falling off ladders. Does it involve Tyler, more than one person? Tyler, it's not herpes. It involves one hundred. Yeah. No, no, no. Is it health? Is it health related? Well, they died, so it's obviously health related. <laughs> no, I mean, is it, from, is it from a medical condition? No, it is not. Okay. No, no. Does the act that gets to the death involve more than one person? Oh, um. It can. Is it paper cuts? Risty says paper cuts. Mm, I don't know the kind of paper cuts Risty <laughs> is familiar with. You does it involve cut water? Your jugular. You paper yeah. cut your jugular. It, d- does it involve uh, voids and what was the thing in the Navy when you went into voids and uh, like tanks and voids? Uh, it is not military. No. Not military. Does it involve water? It does not involve water. Is it related to something with the the lungs or the respiratory system? Mm-mm. No. Does it involve machinery? Yes. Well, um, that might throw you off, but it can. Is it? Uh, is it the uh, the cardboard balers in a warehouse? Ooh, no. <laughs> I bet I bet that number is a lot higher than a hundred too. Yeah, your yeah. wife is it wives catching guys with their secretary? <laughs> Why would that be an OSHA violation? And that would be more white collar than blue collar. It's a me. It's a me too era. <laughs> it is not. Does it involve something it, falling? It is not. Uh, it is not someone falling. Does it involve shelves falling? Nope. Does it involve? Instruments falling, not instruments. Light lighting fixtures, changing nope. light bulbs. No. no. Okay. That's a good does, guess, does it involve with elements falling? Natural elements. 
Yes. So Ooh, it's so age, it's trauma related. Under. Is it mining? Well, it is mining. Not mining. Uh, Rudy. Oh, we got a viewer. Rudy nails it. Rudy Reyes. So it is. Uh, it is uh, clear cutters or um, those working in in tree removal. One hundred people die a year from trees falling. I it's was scary. That, I it's was scary that. how much shit Rudy. Weird shit, Rudy knows. Nice. <laughs> I should have asked if it was the way our governor made all of his money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, he's in a wheelchair, so he wasn't what? one of the 100. He had a tree fall on him. Yeah. He didn't die. I assume it's that okay number make- is significantly higher in Canada. Uh, hey, Rudy. <laughs> Hey, you know what, Rudy? I don't. We don't do this for every show. Actually, this we don't really do this at all. But Rudy, send uh, send us a message on Facebook, and uh, I'm gonna get you something in the mail. So uh, you win uh, win a nice prize. So uh, shoot me a message in Facebook, and I'll get you something. He needs one of those last twenty of the cigars that Abe peeled out this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe some Robocraft swag. Yeah, Rudy's already getting a weasel pack. So there you go, there you go. Um, so that is this week's numero de los muertos. All right. So at this point, normally we would ask kind of a lightning round of questions, but because we have so many guys on the show, it would seriously take us another three hours just to get through this lightning round. So I just want to do a quick rundown with each person. I've been doing a lot of reading during um, during quarantine. Uh, by reading, I mean listening to audiobooks uh, because I'm super lazy. Um, uh, actually, I've been so busy, I don't have time to have a book open, so I've been listening to a lot of audiobooks. And I'm curious from some of you guys who some of your favorite sort of, I don't even know the term to use for it, but like favorite modern thinkers, you know, whether it's a philosopher or a scientist or an economist or you know, just somebody over the last 10 years or so who's, um, you know, had had some you know quality uh content for you to read or listen to um you know that you've that you think you've gained something from um so uh abe i'll start with you is there anybody that's uh, that kind of struck your head? <laughs> okay, okay i'll start with somebody else uh, no, that, that, is this is this like just at any point through our lives well yeah it could be at any point i'm specifically thinking of you know people who've who've you know, more in the last 10 years or so, but, but honestly, it could be anybody at all, you know, just somebody I think, a philosopher I think, or a scientist or anything. I think, I think the most, per, the most person that I've read that's kind of influenced how I live my life and, and that I kind of think about most often in my daily thinking would be Khalil Gibran. Hmm. And I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with that person. So who, who is that? He's he's a, a author, writer, philosopher, Middle Eastern guy. Um, you know, one of my favorite quotes, especially in parenthood, is like you know, um, he, he describes parents as being like the bow and kids are the arrow. You know, we can only point them in the right direction, and then you know, you just gotta let it go, let okay. it fly its path. Okay. You know, but I, I, I use a lot of I use I use a lot of what he's. Um, what I, you know, I, I, a lot of stuff I learned in reading him 
but it, it's been many many years but I, I use it today so i think it's affected me the most probably okay um john is there anybody that comes to mind that you've been reading or listening to a lot lately uh, I listen to a lot of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. He, uh, he yeah, show. yeah, he covers a, lo- a wide range of topics, and his production values are you know next level. And all of the different topics that he lists, which may seem not that interesting at the outset, are fascinating and always provide uh, interesting insight on history, which is you know kind of one of my one of my things. Yeah, uh, Charlie, what about you? Yeah, I uh, I found myself particularly since quarantine started going back and and watching a lot of Chappelle stuff because um, when I was younger, the Chappelle show was was on, but I was still in middle school, um, and uh, you know I just looked at it as as humor, as something to laugh at, and then you know to go back and obviously he's changed a bit, um, but certainly the idea you know of the idea that he's been promoting of the idea that, that anywhere in America, there's a comedian performing who is representing your views and, and is standing up for you. And the idea of, of comedy is, is social commentary wasn't something that I understood when I, you know, was really into watching Dave Chappelle because the Chappelle show wasn't necessarily, I mean, obviously there was social undertones, but, um, but going back and watching it and then, and then reading, you know, about his life and going back and watching the James Lipton interviews. And then certainly obviously what took place over the last eight weeks or so, um, you know, he's, he's someone that, that certainly had a lot of thoughts and, and arguably saw a lot of this coming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Skip, what about you? Um, I've been watching more old television shows than I have been reading, but the last, um, the last two things I've read um, have been James Baldwin essays from James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. And um, really trying to get a grip on, you know, a different perspective of kind of the whole Black Lives Matters thing. You know, that you got these social media people like Sean King and you have um, kind of these old school um, kind of provocateur kind of like rebel rousers like uh, Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson and those people. But, you know, James Baldwin was never in any of those molds. James Baldwin was always like... <laughs> a completely different perspective. So mm-hmm. um, I, we watched a documentary, Sean and I watched a documentary about a month ago, uh, James Baldwin. And so I wanted to kind I'm of read. Negro. Yeah. I wanted to read more of his, mm-hmm. his essays on, on race. And um, you know, I, I, we also recently saw a, a documentary about John Lewis, uh, the Congressman John Lewis, which I thought was really good and <clears throat> makes you think that, it, you know, I wish we had more people like John Lewis, and I don't know who's next on the bench after yep. him. Yep. Skip, I'd highly recommend. Um, there was a coffee table book um, that was done with the the two famous, two most famous Baldwin essays that um, was put out. I forget the last name, but it's a famous photographer. His first name is Steve, with uh, photographs from when Baldwin was there writing those essays during the civil rights movement, we have the book at the office. It is a, it's a fascinating sort of not juxtaposition, but a complimentary element to those essays. And I think almost all the photographs in there are all previously unpublished. Yeah. I mean, you figure like 40, 50 years later, some of the things he said were really on target. So, yeah. Yeah. um, I think, um, 
Yeah, and there's only there's so many people trying to co-opt all these movements, whether it's the far left kind of socialist or the the you know the um, I don't know. It, it's just really interesting. James Baldwin's, I think, is probably one of the smartest people that's lived in the last fifty years. Yeah. Um, f- for me, I've been uh, uh, listening to a couple audiobooks uh, by Steven Pinker, and um, then there's a biologist, uh, evolutionary bio- biologist, and who sort of in his later year- later years is leaning more in the philosophy end. His name's E. E. O. Wilson, uh, and I highly recommend um, his stuff. I, I I've gotten. I don't know, some good, uh, just good food for thought, you know, not, not really any revelations or anything, but just some interesting, uh, stuff I've been listening to lately. Anything for you, Garrett? A lot of stuff. Um, but uh, I've been, uh, reading, uh, uh, Abraham X. Kendi. Um, so I start, started with, uh, stamp from the beginning, just finished that. And then, um, his next book, um, which I'm going to be starting uh, shortly. And uh, he's, uh, he's kind of a, a, a new brilliant mind in um, a lot of the stuff going on. So, okay. So we oh. watched uh, Hamilton was on Disney plus. I had yeah. never seen it. So we watched that. And then, and then we watched Sam Adams, the, the HBO miniseries. Then we watched uh, Lincoln, the movie. And so we've kind of been watching some of these founding father kind of things. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty, um, it's pretty enlightening, I think, when you look at the, the you know there's all this you know high high thinking about our founding fathers were all wise and they all agreed and yeah. they established our country. But when you really start getting into all the details of of, of them, and then LBJ, uh, more more modern, but um, there's a two or three different kind of series or movies about LBJ we've watched. Um, but I kind of it kind of makes me sad for where we are now right yeah i just i just finished all five seasons of billions i feel so shallow now yeah. <laughs> i feel better about myself sometimes watching that show like like both sides are completely fucked up <laughs> yeah. um, hey, next you should watch ballers if you're looking to take your phone oh, i watched i watched ballers when it aired have you ha- abe have you watched homeland oh so good that's, that's yeah, the one that, we ju- that's, that's the one we just finished that's on my queue. That's on my queue of one of these shows to eventually start on. Well, you know, it's really, it's really good. Is uh, I never watched The Wire, and so I started oh, Wire, greatest, yeah. greatest TV Great show, show ever, The Wire. I know, and so I started watching it, and they just freaking took it off. I was like halfway through season one, and now it's 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 not. Hey, the- Pay the thirty nine dollars or whatever to get the whole thing on iTunes. It's it's well worth it. Yeah, that, and there's a Band of Brothers, Generation oh, Kill, yeah. uh, Generation well, after Kill. You, after you finish the Wire, uh, Treme, which was from all the same know, producers yeah. and, and a ton of the same cast, but never got any of the acclaim. But Treme, I was over at somebody's house a couple weeks ago, and they were like, I, you know, I've watched the Wire, but I've never seen like, is there something similar? And I was like. Treme is, you know, and, and if you were Excellent. around for it, as opposed to Wire, if you weren't living in Baltimore, some of that stuff doesn't resonate. But, but Treme was fucking incredible. There's also there's also a great show on Apple Plus called um, Little America. Have you heard of that? 
No. It's like these. It's each individual show is kind of like a true story based on an immigrant, and uh, there's four or five of them that are really, really good. Nice. But Abe, have you watched uh, Succession? No. Also very, also very good. Yeah, if you're, they're, they're if even, you were, they're even slimier than Billions. <laughs> yeah, if you were a fan of Billions, Succession is is like a darker, right? It's great. Of Billions that hasn't gotten stale yet. Yeah, it's darker. great. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, Succession's a show that you could you could binge in a couple days. What yeah. what uh, what what platform yeah. is that from? HBO. HBO. Okay. All right. So, um, giving all our uh, viewers and listeners a a little bit of an idea of uh, what we have coming up soon. Uh, next week, uh, we have uh, Luciano Mariellas from Ace Prime Cigars, and Great on twenty eighth we. Dude. have um, yeah, I've I've been talking to him over email for the last couple of weeks, and and we've been having some great conversations. So really excited to get to know him. Um, July twenty eighth, we have Lee Marsh from Stolen Throne Cigars, a, a new small company. Um, and then on August fourth, um, we have uh, Tony Barrios or Barrios from, uh, uh, from Stallone Cigars. Um, very interesting dude, and uh, excited to talk to him about uh, you know his history and. Uh, uh, horses and uh, you know this uh, this new cigar venture, uh, and then on August 11th we have Jeff Borshowitz from Corona Cigar Company. And always for, interesting. Always interesting. Absolutely. Um, so uh, for each of you, uh, John, give us uh, give us an idea of where people can get all the latest from uh, from you and from Developing Palettes. Well, that's easy enough, uh, developingpallets.com, and of course our YouTube channel, Developing Pallets. If uh, you want to be entertained by some uh, tomfoolery during reviews, that's a good place to check out the videos, or you can pick up the podcast at any podcast catcher anywhere. All right, and uh, Charlie, where's uh, where can everybody find the latest and greatest from Half Wheel every day? Halfwheel.com, follow us on all of the social media platforms. I don't know what happens if you type it into Pornhub, but go for it um and we also have a beer website called tenemu so if you ever want to wonder what half would look like if brooks ran the website uh we have a craft beer website called tenemu and you can find that out which is basically just an excuse for them to buy beer <laughs> we don't actually buy that much beer brooks is into like pokemon cards now so uh skip where's we on a pokemon website i don't know skip where can everybody get the latest and greatest info on uh roma craft to back uh, the best place is my Facebook feed, probably. Um, you know, if you're a white right wing nutbag, you you may not appreciate it as much as Abe does. But um, if you want to see pretty pictures, there's Roma Craft Tobacco uh, on Instagram. Um, if you want to find out what's going on with Fiorella and her her uh, quarantine swimming activities, there's my Instagram. Um, what I'm eating, what I'm cooking. Uh, but you know, the, the probably the easiest one is probably Danny, Danny Vasquez, uh, the Danny Vasquez on Instagram. Uh, he's always got interesting stuff. And then uh, Sean, Sean Vader three, I think, is on Instagram. But um, you know, most people that would be interested, they're kind of already tuned in. Yeah. Uh, we don't have a lot of you know hot chicks smoking cigars, uh, but we definitely, if you're into you know becoming a fat ass <laughs> or. Uh, Finding out, you know what? What I kind of really miss is I, I really miss being in the factory. You know, this is the longest I've been away from the factory in like seven or eight years, and um, 
even though Nicaragua is kind of its own unique form of fucked up right now, which it kind of has been for the last 40 years. But um, I really miss the the humility and stuff you get from from being in that environment every day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, being here, ordering Amazon every day, ordering DoorDash every day, it's not exactly the same thing. Um, so um, hopefully when we'll get you, back there soon. Yeah, I was going to say, when do you think you're going to be able to get back home? Man, um, you know, so home is a relative thing these days. You know, Mike and I have bought, I think we're buying two houses this month. And, um, you know, we're kind of working more on our real estate stuff. But, um, you know, I'd like to get back to Nicaragua post-substantial equivalence and build a new factory and and, and have everybody be a part of that. And, um, you know, we've got the land and we're ready to kind of do that as soon as we know it's a good idea. Um, but you know, our people in Nicaragua, they're, it's, it's funny how resilient, I mean, you know, it's remarkable how, how resilient they are. Um, we've only had a couple of people that have kind of showed any kind of weird symptoms and, um, here in the office, you know, Mike's daughter, um, we think she's positive for COVID. She got it from a, a a tutor session. So we've kind of have our own kind of like dealing with quarantining and, you know, separating pods and everything. It's pretty crazy, but, um. You know, yeah. Arlen and Fiorella are scheduled to go back in the beginning beginning of August. Um, you know, my issue is I have health issues. I'm obviously I'm not as healthy as Abe or John or Charlie. <laughs> but uh I'm you know, if I get COVID, I'm pretty much done. So um I'm trying not to say too many stupid things on social media that will come back and haunt me. But uh um, you know, certainly in Nicaragua, it's harder to get to a hospital. So I don't know how, I don't know when I'm going back to be okay. honest. Okay. Um, Abe, give, uh, give everybody an idea where they can find the latest and greatest from you. Uh, before I say that, I don't know why we didn't mention this live, but I totally agree with you, Matt and John. The expanse is probably one of my most favorite all time sci-fi. Nice. Show. That was nice. me. Yeah. yeah I was Garrett. Sorry. I didn't know. No, it's all good, brother. Yeah. Expanse. Classic. Awesome. So good. Um, for me, it's easy. Uh, you know, if you're interested in our retail site, it's smokein.com. We got a Facebook page that pretty much is mostly sales oriented. Um, for fun and opinions and chatter, you know, follow us on KMA Talk Radio on Facebook. Um, that's where we get a little more interactive and talk about stuff and have guests on our show and kind of do good work like you guys do. Well, guys, I really appreciate all your time tonight. It's the longest show in, in our history, absolutely by far. Um, you don't do, say. Yeah, I know. Uh, hang you're, out. In coop, you're in the coop territory now. <laughs> coop wouldn't be that dumb to have you and me on the same show, Skip. <laughs> actually, uh, Charlie just cuts me off, so it's actually shorter. Me, when it's me and, if it's me and Abe and Saka oh, and Hector... It, it's a much. It's a five-hour show. If it's yeah. you and fill in the blank, it's still the same thing. <laughs> When's John going to be on the show? Is he coming back next week to John, answer all the John, questions you ask? John him? says about twelve words a day. I think that's about all I can get in with you on the show, Skip. <laughs> Guys, thanks so much for your time. Uh, hang out in the green room for a couple minutes after we're done going live. For all our viewers, thank you so much for watching. Um, and for those of you listening after the fact on the audio podcast, thanks so much. Uh, please support our sponsors. Please support your local brick and mortar cigar shops. And until we see you guys next time, burn cigars, not bridges. 
Take care. Thank you. Thanks, guys.